coming up in this episode. I hear a lot of organizations say they're so customer centric. And then I start speaking to their CS team and they're absolutely effing not. Like they're lying to themselves because it sounds good. I don't, or maybe they are so disconnected. They think they're customer centric, but then it's like, you haven't spoken to your client in six months time and you haven't asked them how they're, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. You know, if you go to the majority of the countries outside of, uh, of the UK, you know, Europe, America, uh, which is the majority of the world, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> the, the problems that we talk about are not the problems that they talk about. Totally. It's like fucking perspective, man. Help them understand what success looks like. So ask the right question, meaning, hey, if I wanted to keep 50% of your customers for three years, what do you think we should do? Um, and then take a look at the life cycle and make sure that the language and the value you're using is consistent. The Founders Unplugged podcast, hosted by Greg McCallum. Raw, unedited conversations with entrepreneurs and startup founders. What? There we go. There we go. So we're going (laughs) to... That was great timing. (laughs) Thanks to my allergies. Shout out to them. My my allergy pill hasn't kicked in yet today. So here we are. Oh, fun time. What sort of uh, beautiful allergies have you got? Well, I... Don't mean to brag about this, but I got the all-time high score at my allergist when we did right. skin tanning. So I'm allergic to basically the entire outdoors, grasses, um, pollens, molds, dogs, cats, horses, birds, you name it. Right. So You hit the yeah. jackpot. So you're just basically allergic to life. Yes. I'm allergic to really anything. I should be in a bubble and I'm not. <laughs> Oh, so, honestly, Darwin would be so pissed that I'm so. <laughs> he might be fascinated, you know. I, I think he'd be like, "She is against my whole theory here." So <laughs> yeah, just check it all out. Like, yeah. survived to the fish. What? Like, how did you get here? Just say no. She's this, this girl is not the fittest. <laughs> oh dear. Well, that's something. To, at least you've got some accomplishment. Accomplishment you can uh, brag about there. So that's good. Yeah, you um, really. Are. Uh, I don't normally share the uh, the allergy flex, but here we go. Right. Look, sometimes you've just got to you've just got to put it out there and, and and show off your accomplishments. Be proud. But uh, look, it's it's great to see you again, and uh, very excited to talk to you about all sorts of things. And uh, as you can probably gather, this is kind of the the, the vibe of the conversation we got going on here today. So I hope you're ready for a bit of a journey. Um, yeah. I, uh, I I. I and as I pointed out, there isn't a huge amount of structure today, <laughs> but but there is one one piece of structure that I, I try and insist on at the beginning to you know give listeners and viewers some sort of uh, what's the word um, something to hold on to I guess, and that is to ask my guests to introduce themselves and uh, you know however much you want or little you want and uh, tell tell people um, what you're doing, what you're up to, a bit about the business. So I, I kind of, I, I pass the buck on to my guests to do that job for me. Well, thank you very much. And, and what I'll say <laughs> is in my interviewing of customer success folks over the years, every time I asked that question, I would not hire them if their answer was more than a minute. So you might right. get a briefer summary than than other folks because of, of right. how I punish people for telling me too much. <laughs> well, um, you know, this is a podcast, so you can go on for as long as you like. Do you want me to? I can filibuster as well, but no, I, yeah, exactly. uh, I am Aaron Stavi. I run a customer success consulting business now. And professionally, I was in customer success my whole career, even before it was called customer success. So graduated college right after the 2008 economic crisis 
And that is my LinkedIn indeed. And uh, I was desperate for a job. I had to pay for my undergrad and I was really stressed. So I had started going to the recruiting fair for years in advance. I'm not gonna spend this much detail, but I think it's interesting because basically I fell into my career and I knew I needed a job. I worked for years to build connections at the career fairs and that's the only way I got my job. So one year after I graduated, there was a survey and it went out and only 30% of kids in my graduating class had a job one entire year after graduation. So I was just happy to have something, right? Yeah. I went to Battle Creek, Michigan. If you haven't been there, uh, it is where Kellogg World Headquarters is. And so oh, I, okay. yeah, I pulled data. I worked for Nielsen. I pulled data. I knew everything about cereal and Pop-Tarts that you could possibly imagine. I spent two years of my life living in it. And then I transferred to through Nielsen, which does data analytics, not just TV measurement stuff. We then worked at, I worked at Milsa. Miller Coors in Chicago. And I did the same thing, but I got to be in the craft beer division. And that's when craft beers were starting to blossom in the US. Right. I got to see this whole market come up and I, I love dad jokes and bad puns. So I started writing thought leadership on behalf of Nielsen. Mm -hmm. And I still have an article on the thought leadership website that was IPAs are creating a brouhaha, but B-R-E-W. And so that's that's my brand in short. Anywho, yeah, you knew the target market you were going for there, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I was. Just, you know what? Sometimes because the job could be boring, so it's like I had to bring in my own humor to keep my mind sharp with it. And yeah. then I did what any normal person in corporate America would do, and I moved to Tel Aviv, Israel, took a leave of absence from Nielsen, and started working in in startup culture, where I went from wearing, you know blouses and blazers to people coming in the office in pajamas and sandals and all this stuff and i was like what is this weird world but they were so smart so then i worked as an individual contributor another account manager at this series a startup and what they were doing was really cool they used military basically data science techniques to bring together big data it was like all of the buzzwords at the time long story short they actually could show major companies huge innovation opportunities. So mm -hmm. the biggest case study was one I worked on. We were hired by a skincare company and we unearthed that hyaluronic acid was going to be the main ingredient in skincare before anyone else did. They actually already used it. It wasn't a brand new ingredient. People had used it, but they just didn't market it. And so they changed their packaging, became the number one SKU in Sephora. That was our first. It was a small brand that had just been acquired by Estee Lauder. And then we went into Estee Lauder and grew it. You know, the, the contract size huge. From there, I started hiring and managing people across the UK and the US, uh, built out the customer success program for the consumer packaged goods and food, food and beverage se section of the Series A company. And then after four years there, and a brief gap year doing marketing, which was so fun. I decided to move to something else. And I went to a marketing tech company that was about 80 million in ARR at the time. Uh, they didn't trust me because I had never worked in e-com. I was like, hi, what's a conversion? And they're like, oh my God, don't, why, why do we hire this girl? <laughs> but uh, their renewal rates were like in the 60s at the time. And they gave me four people and we got 100% our entire first year. So we measured it each half uh -huh. of renewal rates. So then they started promoting me. And in, in my time, I wound up overseeing about 60 people, uh, one inclusive of one acquisition that we made and drove up the renewal rates, hit all of our metrics, kept all my talent. 
was able to grow my team and and they are incredibly strong at customer success. Uh, phenomenal people. So that was really fun, dug into the business, learned a lot about business from, from that final four years at the marketing tech company, Series C. And then I started teaching through Sales Impact Academy, I started teaching customer success. Former colleague of mine was like, hey, I'm getting married. I teach this class on the side. Do you want to try it? I was like, sure. Funny thing is my family's all teachers and I'm not a patient person. So I always was like, I'm never going to teach. And now I'm teaching customer success. So here I go. <laughs> uh, and that changed my, that changed my perspective because I was investing so deeply in one company and so much of my discipline and what I knew and learned over my years, other people didn't have that knowledge that I was like, sheesh, there's a pretty big opportunity out here. It's valuable. Yeah. It's so valuable and it's something that just poured in my soul at this point. It's innate to me, right? So I started thinking about that. And then in January, I decided to, you know, there were layoffs and tech worlds on fire and it gives everyone time mm -hmm. to reflect. And I was like, okay, I think I want to just start working with earlier stage startups, thinking about that series A I worked with, because so many of the decisions they made at that time ultimately paved way to whether they would be successful in customer success two, three, four, five years down the road. Mm -hmm. So why don't I start working with founders? Why don't I see if this is monetizable and go from there? And so I built my business. Uh, I made up my former income in three months time. And here we go. You know, we're, we're scaling. Fantastic. Three months. Yeah. That's impressive. Well, I, I think I'm, and I'm going to get into something that founders, I mean, I'm not fundraising, so I can say this. I think I was relatively lucky, but also there is a market opportunity. So for me, what's happening in the market is because investors realize finally that pipelines are difficult and it's going to be a lot harder to get new business, they're finally doubling down on the importance of retaining the existing business and growing that base. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a belief I am biased, but I've always had. And it's refreshing to see, okay, now investors are thinking this, which means more founders are like, I have to get my customer success in order earlier. Mm. And very few people know how to do it. I would also say very few customer success consultants exist compared to like sales team consultants. Yeah. Because, yeah. And I, this is my hypothesis. I think that we are so paranoid by nature because our entire discipline is figuring out what could go wrong. Mm. And in front of it that is very difficult for customer success professionals to be like i'm gonna go out on my own and help co companies retain their customers so mm -hmm. that's that's uh that's where we're at demands high i've also just i've always worked with c-suite people so my yeah. network is at higher levels because at every single startup inclusive of my first job i was working with c-suite and so i just have the right connections and I consider myself a relatively good human. So, mm. you know, people want to work with good people. And, and you're not intimidated by those individuals. Because a lot of people out there want to start their own sort of service-led business or consultancy, but they're just terrified of approaching, you know, people in C-suite and being like, hey, would you like to, to, to yeah. pay me to do this? And, that, and that's like, you know, it's, that's a huge blocker, isn't it? Yeah, and, and to me, because I was, I was on the executive team at my last company, people are just people. Yeah. I, I, and I would say the only people I'm intimidated by are her phenomenal chefs, because I always say my ultimate <laughs> goal is to be on Great British Bake Off. So like if, right. if Hollywood were to walk into my house, I would have an asthma attack and not. <laughs> OK, but, I used to be a chef. You intimidated by me now. Oh, <gasps> no, I, I, I want to steal the whole interview and ask you every single thing about you being a chef. Though. 
<laughs> I used to be a long time ago in another life. It was my first career. I actually moved to France for a couple of years and trained uh, and trained in France. Yeah, I'm oh. the I'm the home cook now. I yeah, it was what I wanted to do, and then I got disillusioned with it because it's just a fucking nightmare. So that's so. my so I'm debilitatingly competitive, which which you know many chefs are. And I thought about going to be an apprentice when I was 14. Mm. And, and there was a pretty good culinary school where I grew up. And so I thought about it. But for me, I've been cooking since I was seven. It is now, especially as I've gone through some toxic work experiences, blah, blah, blah. It's really my outlet and my safe space. Exactly. And my right. Was like, if this turns into my job, I give 90% of my life force and a whole lot of intensity to my job. Mm. So anywho, once I'm able to retire and be financially secure, then I'll do something in food. But right. yeah, I'm just preserving it as my as my happy place. But we will be talking about food later on in this podcast because <laughs> now, now I know enough to be dangerous about you. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's just like anything. If you start turning, they always say, you know, if you if you um, if you're you know, you t if you can turn a career um, around something that you love, then you'll never feel like you're working a day in your life. That's bullshit. Like, I, I don't believe that at all. Like, there are certain things in life that are sacred, that are for you, and if you love them, keep them for you, because as soon as you put work around them, there are things about them you will not love. And that was what it was like with food, that's what it's like with art for me as well, you know, a number of other things. And just, so for me, I keep them, keep them to myself, they're hobbies. So I'm not an art girl, but what you touched on just made me laugh because I used to have, <laughs> there, was this, there was this sales guy, his name was Shlomi and he was at my series A company and Good he's night. gentle. Yeah. He's awesome. Awesome man. And we went to a, we to see a client at one point and on the, we work TV, it was like, do what you love. And mm. the client wasn't in the office yet. And he just looks at me and he goes, I fucking hate coming here. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, do you think I'm doing what I love? No, I'm obviously not doing what I love. Like, I have kids. I want to chill with my kids. This makes yeah. me feel terrible. And I'm like crying laughing as the client. <laughs> and he's just like looking at me like, obviously, we're not going to continue this conversation with <laughs> a client. But I'm like, oh, Shlomi. So every time I see do what you love, I think of Shlomi because he just, he made my day. What I will say, though, I am going to challenge you because there are aspects of every single job I've loved. Like I mm. served soft serve ice cream for six years. I loved doing that. I loved making coffee. This is obviously in you know my youth when, when I was in high school and all that. And in every single job, I've loved different challenges of it. So mm. when pulling data, right? You can't get much more boring than either inputting or pulling data in my opinion. But when I could craft a story and I could help people see something that they didn't see before, I liked that. Now, what I'll say is I definitely like this job the most because mm. I love business and I love figuring out where are the disconnects, where are the silos, where's like, yeah. where's the smoking gun that's keeping this business from being where they're at to going to that next chapter. Yeah, and I can I can totally agree with that. I have the same thing with, with what I do as a consultant, right? yeah. which is it's, it's like you're an investigator. So like you're a detective, you're problem solving. You're trying to find things, you're looking at connections. There's something yeah. about it, which is just, you know, it's so big, this big yeah. picture and, you know, having to go into the micro and, and view the macro at the same yeah. time. There's something that only a few people in the world, I think, and for the people in the world, I think that you know are capable of that. First of all, but also fall in love with that. I think what it is is it's a it's a love for problem solving 100%. more than anything else. That's 100%. what it is. Yeah. But I think you know, yeah. You know, going back to the food thing though, that is like it. That's a problem of balance. That's where there's more shit 
that you have to deal with rather than actually doing the thing that you love. It's yeah. like it, it's like you know if if you were doing what you're doing now mm -hmm. and you end up having to do more and more admin, more and more right. finance, more and it just means you're spending less and less time actually doing the problem solving. Well, then guess what? Suddenly you're no longer enjoying your job. You know. Well, and that's interesting. I mean, we can get into that because I will say where I'm at right now, I'm on the precipice of having to figure out how to scale and right. bring in people and that's terrifying. But uh, I, I do admin. It doesn't take up that much time. What takes up a lot of my time is networking, brand awareness and pipeline. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Strategizing, then, like, all of that sort of stuff. But the thing is, though, that's still problem solving. That's true. I, mean, yeah. I still, I suppose that's still, that, because for me, I, I know that's why I still continue doing what I'm doing because yeah. most of it actually is still fun because if, you know, as a commercial advisor, well, I just need to advise myself, you know, it's just like, what am I doing wrong? What, what can I do better? So like, you know, I don't know. there's I, enough, there's enough variety of stuff to keep it interesting. Right. I think that's the key. For sure. I need variety. Yeah. If you're told to cook a fucking flan every day, like <laughs> 20 yeah. times a day, you're like, I'm quite sick of cooking flans. Like I used to love this recipe and now I can't stand it. Yeah. You know, and it's so that's a bit different. Like it's repetitive. That's the problem with a lot of this. I agree. Things, right? And I actually get freaked out. It's funny. I, I get freaked out by all gelatin products. So the, the right. is like, it's a hard thing for me. Yeah, you got I, an allergy to that as well. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen for me, period. But that's all yeah. to say, yeah, I getting back to sleuthing, I think I read a lot of Nancy Drew as a kid. And... Right. Did you have Nancy Drew over there? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it's, that's familiar. I don't think I've ever read any. Okay, well, they're phenomenal. And right. she is, the best part is there's 45 books and she's 18 throughout the whole series. So she had a big year. Uh, <laughs> that's all to say, I, I just met with a new client and in 10 hours, I told him, here are the key problems in your business, right? Mm. We did this in 10 hours. I was like, yeah, I'm kind of like a bulldog. Like I, I get straight to the, I cut through the bullshit pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My One of my dreams, which I'm not going to do, but I could totally do due diligence for investors and just focus on customer success. Because like, if you figure out what's going on in customer success, you figure out all the other parts of the organization yeah. that are problematic. So that's something that I haven't seen any, any firms do maybe because they don't want to know honestly at this point maybe i mean yeah or, or they just haven't thought of it but but look uh, let's take a step back for just one moment because okay. i'm deeply aware of the fact that i know this uh firsthand that not many people actually fully understand what customer success sure. is yeah so so let, let would you mind defining it what in yeah. in your terms what we yeah. is? i know it's kind of like going a bit back to school but i think that's quite important yeah. for people thank you for asking and keeping me on track that's important I would say, so customer success is the management of clients after they sign the contract. So anything post-sale is customer success. It's it's a lot of customer experience. Customer experience is also pre-sale, so it's not, it's not only customer experience. But it includes onboarding. It includes getting the client's time to value as quick as possible. It's basically fulfilling the promise or as much of the promise as possible that they were promised in sales. It's understanding their business. It's understanding how the product or service can continue to add value to their business and make their lives easier. It's re-articulating that with the right people at the right time. And then that should result in normally renewals and expansion. Now, who are having that conversation? It's not always one person, right? There might be an onboarding manager, there might be support, there might be all of these other areas, especially as, as businesses scale, but customer success is the art and science of defining value often, at the very least understanding value, 
delivering value and then talking about value continuously so that you are controlling the narrative and resulting with the client continuing to work with you and expanding. Does that make great, sense? Great explanation, yeah. I, I, I often explain it somewhat similarly, but I, um, I kind of uh, describe anyone who has any interaction with a customer as part of the customer success team. Whether they whether they have the customer success title yeah. or not, that's kind of you know it's a it's an archaic old school way of viewing things that you need to have a customer success agent in order to fulfill customer success because as you rightly pointed out, it happens right from the moment of you know pre sales. It happens from the moment of prospecting. Every yeah. every you know every value you propose, every interaction you have, and then and as I and I'm a huge uh, advocate for this and I'm on record of saying this many many times I think I even said this when we first spoke that you know the, the problem especially with a subscription model which is the vast majority of SaaS you know in tech businesses these days is you have to sell the product every month to someone 100% so that's where the value is in customer success if anyone ever questions what where's the value in that there's the value right there yeah. because people forget value of things right you need to remind them that's why it's like, you know, and, and I use my language, I use a, a spectrum of uh, soft touch to hard language, but it's like, if we're not battering people over the head with value, we will lose. Exactly. And one thing that people also get messed up on is what is value? Mm. Because I hear all of these folks who are like, oh, if we just get usage up, we're going to get the renewal. I'm like, well, no. what? Like, what are they using it for? What's the business impact of their usage? What yeah. are they what pain point are we removing or what are we bringing it to the table for them, right? These are all of the questions of value. And so value itself seems to be misunderstood, maybe because people get overwhelmed by it. Mm. And then also inconsistency of value. So I've worked in organizations and I now consult organizations where value is presented in the sales cycle as one thing. And then the reality is completely different or they don't even know what they're talking about in the sales cycle. So they make up their own value yeah so like, there's a disconnect there's a disconnect and it's yeah, yeah, fine, yeah. right it happens but how can we be as consistent as possible in that customer experience mm. because if you're building a brand for yourself a brand is built on consistency so if you're saying you're one thing then you need to figure out how to del deliver that one thing and continue to re-articulate that one thing right mm. it seems so simple and almost no one does it to be frank yeah yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right it or if they do they do it very very poorly yeah. Um, I think another key difference between something like customer success, because people, uh, at least in the UK, I don't know about the States, but actually I think it's a few people I spoke in the States about this issue too, quite often don't understand the difference between customer success and customer support. And my explanation, yes. right, and, and my, my explanation for that, and I'm keen to know what your thoughts are on this, has always been that, you know, the difference there is one is passive, one is active, right? You know, or proactive oh, and, okay. and, and, and not, you know, whereas, you know, because the, the worst kind of customer success is, is the type of success you only get when you seek it as a customer it should yeah. be you get a phone call and it's like hey i'm giving you a call to let you know we've done this and we've added this and i want to show you this it's like oh fucking awesome you know yeah. not a newsletter that just says we've released some new features but like actually you know let me show you, let, you, know, this is how you can do it. yeah that also reflects hey i remember you were trying to do this we just came out with this new thing right like that yeah. Type. So you, I, you made a request for this uh, feature like six months ago. Guess what we've just launched? Like, thank you for that that uh, suggestion. You know, stuff like that. And that's where you need that holistic, you know, built-in communication with product, with sales, with marketing, with everyone. Like, it all needs to be connected. And that is another. So that is another flavor of customer mm. success to answer. So I, I, I've actually never heard the reactive versus proactive. I really like that. I will also say customer support is normally very tactical and technical. Yeah. And in my experience, customer success 
is more commercially and business savvy focused related to the overall strategy impact and all of that. Yes, mm -hmm. they still do tech enablement, but support to me is more of that tactical, almost like live FAQ answering type of thing. Yeah, as absolutely. Customer success, which is guiding the client through how do we really deliver value? How do we show it? How do we gather all of those use cases and, and uh, impact points, social proof from your own team? And then how do we package that up really nicely for you and, and the figures that be? Yeah. Uh, you don't you don't call a customer success agent because you can't log in, right? No, exactly. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So I agree. And, and what you just touched on. So for me, ideally, customer success is that center of the org where, A, we're not solely responsible for retaining the customers. We have the conversations. We're quarterbacking anyone else we need from the organization to help us retain the customers. But one big misconception I found with founders is like, well, customer success isn't doing their job if we have too high a churn. And it's like, whoa, are they communicating why we're losing mm -hmm. the customers? Are they communicating what we need? Are we communicating all of the different opportunities? Then they're doing their job if they're mm -hmm. advocating on behalf of their client and they're managing internal stakeholders in your company, right? Churn and retention are an organizationally wide effort and they mm -hmm. should because it's a reflection of the work. That's all to say, I do agree. I think customer success should be in the middle. Funny enough, I was reading Amp It Up by Frank Slootman. Have you read it? I'm not. No, I haven't. Okay, so I'm not a big business book reader. I learn on the streets. Okay, like I learn. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm the same. I've read a few, but yeah. Normally I glaze over, but I liked Amp It Up because Frank, who did Snowflake and like all of these big companies, very successful dude, he has some interesting leadership styles. I was devouring the book. I was like, okay, like I love the idea of all of the C-suite having the same metric because when I've worked with C-suites and everyone has different metrics they're working against, they all become self-interested because they want their mm. own cost and they, they want their own variable and they can hold the company back. So like really interesting ideas. And then in like one sentence, he's like, customer success should not be its own department and it shouldn't exist. And I was like, oh God. Oh dear. <laughs> but, but his point was not, that he doesn't believe in customer success. His point was that it is an organizationally wide effort. And the more mm. you have stark handoffs like from sales, they are going to be less apt to care or to think about, ooh, am I selling a customer that's gonna renew 12 months from now? Yeah, yeah. And he was like, your commercial team should be one commercial, which isn't an answer. I don't know many AEs who would be willing to do both personally, because I think they're very different skill sets. That's all to say. It was an interesting read because I agreed with him. And then he had a very bold statement about mm. my own craft. And I was like, well, I can see the thought behind it. I haven't seen it done well in that format, but happy to be proven wrong. I can um, kind of see his point, though, which is, you know, the, 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 in some ways, customer success, you know, shouldn't be its own department. It should be a skill set. A skill set, yeah, that is, that is embedded across all commercial functions of a business. I can kind of see that, but, right. but I mean that begs the question then, based on what you said, like what is the difference between a customer success agent and an account manager? I think there. I actually think account managers are customer success. I was an account right. manager and I was doing customer success. I think that's predominantly what you're doing, right? Especially if you if you're working only in the late stage of the pipeline where you're yeah. just closing, for example, like you're you're pretty much just just about doing yeah. sales when the sale's been pretty much done for you, if you're just coming in and closing it, especially if you've got other um, stakeholders on both ends facilitating uh, 
facilitating the close, then ultimately, yeah, you're just picking up a bit. Uh, you're basically having a handover and you're, you're doing customer success, right? And, and for me, my favorite format, and this is when I was an individual contributor, it was at my Series A, I would go with the account executives on the sales calls once they were in final stages. I was a subject matter expert. That is my most favorite way of doing things as well. Yeah, 100% because also there, there's a lot of elements to it. One, human-wise, they already know you and trust you instead of a yeah. stark handoff. Because I always say when you have stark handoffs, it's like they're dating the salesperson and now they're married to the CS stranger. Like yeah, that's, that's, and that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. It's just not fun. for. And by the way, on our honeymoon, we tell them bad news always, right? Like mm. immediately after mm. getting married, we're like, hey, by the way, we can't do this thing. Not yeah. a Sorry, I've been cheating on you. Yeah, yeah. That's right. right, right. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not a great start to a marriage. So yeah, yeah. someone, you have trust, rapport, and some relationship building with the individuals. The other is you're already cemented and positioned as the expert in the room because the AE is never going to know as much about, and they shouldn't, as much about the product as you. So you can start answering the questions, getting through objections before the sale, which is terrifying to some AEs, but in my experience, the more mature AEs are like, hey, I want to be able to keep selling and not get brought into a shitstorm later. So let's yeah. do this now. Great. And they, and if they're on like a rolling commission, they want to keep that person for six, 12, 18 months. Like they want to see that commission to be coming in. Right. That's exactly. And that's exactly right. And then finally, for me, you can just, you can really shorten the onboarding timelines and get mm. them quicker if we were in that format. So that's all to say that was my favorite way of doing things. And for me, account executives, can stay on in the relationship, especially for the larger organizations you're servicing, and they should, because mm. what always happens is that customer success works with those points of contact and they can help with the tactical. And for me, I was gatekept so many times from like re-engaging with that senior stakeholder. I needed someone else from my org to be able to go in so that my wrist wouldn't get slapped for bypassing my points of contact. Yeah, and yeah. that was another important piece, especially for those strategic size clients. How do I have someone else that can help me get through that org, make sure I have multi-threading available so that mm. we're starting ourselves and our value, right? And it's really useful for when you, if you're ever presented with a, an upselling situation as well, where part of your success journey is to do that on a specific cadence or something, then sometimes you need that extra little weight uh, to come in and, and help you with that, you know, especially to the larger clients. Yeah, hundred percent. And yeah, I, I love, I love that you said that though about this sort of the introduction piece because you know, from a, like you pointed out, from a human perspective, it's so important to have the person that they've already built a rapport with and trust with to just be like, I vouch for this person. That's basically what it is. It's like I'm handing you over to this person. They are shit hot. Like bigging them up. You know, like mm -hmm. this person's going to take care of you. This person knows more than if you're happy with me, you're going to be way happier with this person because they know more than I do. I learn from them. Like, yeah. and you're just like feeling bigged up. And like you said, you can make a start on some stuff and tackle some problems head on early on. And yeah, smooth sailing from there. I always used to say to my sales team and the CS team in places I've worked in the past that when you your number comes up on, on your client's phone, because it should be saved, because that's the first thing you should ask yeah. them to do. Love they her. should be excited mm -hmm. about answering the phone like the, like an old friend you know yeah. that's how it should feel you know and if you're not doing that then you're not doing it right and i i love that so what you're speaking to in corporate speak is that trusted advisor relationship but at the end of the day my first renewal so when i went to the series a company they were an agency and they were switching over to a product SaaS situation because the valuation would be higher right not the most productized thing i've ever seen but that's fine and so we were changing to renewals instead of just net new contracts. Mm. And the way I secured our first renewal ever for that company 
was because the person liked me. I swear yeah. it was an emotional decision. I was a good human. And that engagement was a trash fire. I literally, they paid me, well, they paid us, I think like $80,000. And I worked as hard as I possibly could, super communicative, always followed up, built trust, whatever. And literally our deliverable was me saying, hey, we can't deliver what we said we would, I swear. And they said, okay, well, we're gonna renew and pay you an additional 100K to do X, Y, and Z so that we actually can get that thing. That was my first renewal. And it's like, I think a lot of people overlook the importance of people wanting to work with good humans that they know they can trust and will advocate for them. And the other piece is I always showed curiosity with my clients and asking them about their life and who they are and what the job's like and what's their building rapport. That's what that is, right? It's being human, having a conversation. Like, yeah, yeah. It's it is, but so many people are so afraid to look dumb yeah. at not understanding what someone says that they don't do that. And so the lack of, I always am asked like, what's a skill that most CSMs lack or don't practice? And I always say discovery. Right, right. It's always discovery. And mm -hmm. because it can be uncomfortable because maybe you don't know what to ask next or you don't really understand what they're saying and you don't want to look stupid, right? You have all these weird narratives going on in your head. But if you're just like, oh, tell me more, mm -hmm. they'll tell you more and you'll probably be able to figure out what they said you know, and what they meant. So also, also a big part of that, one of the keys to active listening is to stop mm -hmm. talking, right? <laughs> that's, what, that's some of the best advice I've given people when they've listened to their, their calls or, or whatever. It's just like, just, just pause, just pause a bit longer, mm -hmm. allow people to breathe and, and they'll, they'll fill the silence. Mm -hmm. Right now you're filling it, let them fill it, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I was just looking at a new client's gong calls. I love gong. And I opened up one of their, they have a, they're an LNG platform and they have learners. They have three different types of kickoffs. We're going to change that. One of them are for learners. So it's the first time anyone going through the program has ever experienced the brand. And I opened the gong call and the, my client spoke for 92% of the time. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> I know what my first recommendation is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, no one's enrolling. I'm like, yeah, because they're so effing bored. Mm. And they probably muted you and are doing their own shit, right, during these kickoffs. So they don't even know how to enroll because, like, they're crying inside. Yeah. Um, I, I said it slightly nicer than that, but not much nicer than that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I, uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned before, I do pro bono sessions for, for mm -hmm. early stage startups and entrepreneurs and stuff, like, for an hour. And people are like, oh, do we really need an hour? I'm like, yeah, because I'm going to be listening for 45 minutes. And then I'm going to give advice for 15. <laughs> That's the way it should be, right? Yeah, I, I do think so too. And and the guided questions, right? Getting them to start mm. thinking in a certain direction. For me, I normally employ coaching styles just with any founder because I want them to get to their own conclusion through the guided thinking. And I find that to be even more valuable because then frankly, I don't have to do as much persuasion. So it yeah, saves yeah. me work on the back end. But that that's been really effective in terms of questioning and then just letting them speak i agree i i always go for so now our goal i'm redesigning that kickoff i'm like our mm. goal is to go from the customers speaking for eight percent of the time to like 60 percent of the time mm. and right the eyes that big of the operator i'm working with and i'm like it's very doable let's look at each slide what's something you could ask What's something we could bring in? How do we engage these people so they actually give a shit about what you're saying? Mm. And uh, and I think we're going to get there. I am, I'm pretty I'm pretty positive we're going to get there. But just engaging, being human, like no one. We kind of get so caught up, we being CSMs or in general, I think people who who service customers, 
we get so caught up with our objectives. Our objective, okay, I have to run through every single feature of this platform and I have to remind them like what the brand is and I have to make sure they are able to do X, Y, and Z all on this one call. It's like, first of all, too many objectives for one call. Secondly, would you want to watch this shit? Mm -hmm. You know, or do you want to get five emails a day? I don't. So why would we design a program that does that? Yeah. It's just being able to remove from the weeds and from all of the objectives you think are supposed to happen to like what we actually think would be beneficial for the client and provide value. Less is more, right? But the thing is, it's also not just the individual contributors fault. I mean, they, they, they no. quite often told this from the top, you know, like you've got this to do and you, you, oh, don't forget to mention this. And we've got to make sure that they understand this value and what we do. And, you know, they're being told from left and right, like, you know, all these different things that they're meant to cram into a call. But the problem and the problem is quite often they're not given autonomy to just go, right, just choose what you think will work. Right. You know, it's like here's the checklist of shit you've got to do. And we expect you to do it. And the quicker you do it, then the quicker we'll get lock in. And you know, and it's like, you know, or they, dude. Have, <laughs> or they don't have the oversight of leadership. So they're just out there trying their best. Right. You know, yeah. that's it's it's either or for sure. Yeah, what throwing at the whatever the wall and seeing what sticks kind of thing. Yeah. Or they Googled like, what am I supposed to do when they kick off? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's chat. the worst thing to do. That's yeah, like chat. trying to that's trying to go, like Google a medical condition. You're just being like, oh fuck, <laughs> I'm gonna die. <laughs> yeah, this, is it. this is it. Google has informed me that I'm about to perish multiple times. So yeah, right. again, just just when looking for the nearest chip shop, and then yeah, it'll just tell you you're gonna die. Uh, yeah, but it's uh, it's a very. It, I mean, like I said when we first met, I'm ex very passionate about th this topic of of customer success. I mean, a huge believer that you know really sales people need to move more into the mindset of of, of even you know really early on in the pipeline of yeah. of adopting this this uh, this mindset. But like you said, it's not it's just not executed that well in many places. Like my entire commercial strategy for for multiple clients that I work with and for my own business is customer success focused. It has to be. <laughs> Thank you. And it's it's refreshing to hear because sometimes to be transparent, I don't know if I'm just biased because this is my career. Right. But it would make sense to me that if you service your customers well, anyone who ever took marketing 101 or any marketing class knows that word of mouth is the most effective way to build and maintain a business. So if you can service those customers and take care of them, and as best as you can either deliver on the promise or tell them how you're working really hard to deliver on the promise, that's okay too. Then they're probably gonna tell other people, good clients bring in good clients, they multiply, they also have better expectations, so their time to value is lower. And in my experience, they have fewer pushback, right? Because they've all back channeled and been like, hey, this probably is not gonna be the most fun. Here's what to look out for, here's what I recommend, right? That to me just makes sense. And we know that it's lower cost to retain and build existing customers. So I like margins, I like business, I like profit. That to me makes sense too, right? Like you are building a longstanding business. And if you focus on really learning that customer and their pain points and expanding the rest of your product or services around how do you continue to get sticky or how do you work with their peer in the department right next to them, that to me is how you build a really shit hot brand, right? Yeah. But people just get lost in that. And, and what I'm finding, especially as now I work with more founders, is like if they're from a product background, they're just so excited about building more features in the product that they forget to talk to clients. 
and say like, does this even matter? Cause they're like, Ooh, look at this cool shit I just put together. Or if they're like, I just want to close as many logos as possible to show that I'm continuing to double our logos every six months or something, then it's like, okay, well, are you losing them though? Like, are they meaningful logos? Are they actually, do they actually fit or do they get value or do we need to focus on that? So it's interesting to see with founders and I do work with C-suite, you know, who weren't the founding members, but I often work with founders as well. I love to see how their background kind of by osmosis and in general dictates what the approach is. And it's very mm -hmm. rare to have a customer centric organization unless the founder was the key persona. That's yeah. my favorite to work with because they speak the language, they know the pain points, anything they speak to with customers is actually something they deliver against because they're not going to lie to themselves. That to me is like piece of cake. If I was running a VC mm. firm, I would only invest in founders that actually lived the life of their key persona. Mm. That's interesting. I, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, as you can imagine, like thought experimenting and all that. And I've got a bit of a theory as to why we sort of we ended up where we are and why this is uh, so uncommon, right? And I think there's a there's a number of factors. The first is the subscription model for purchasing products is relatively new, right? The mm -hmm. second is because of that, um, even when it came about, it's being implemented with the mindset of selling just any other product, right? Oh, hello. This is uh, she's hello. been back this model, so. Hello, and um, and so because of that, there's these old commercial strategies being implemented on something new. And people are buying, like we talked about, people have to buy it every month, right? So yeah. they're actually purchasing in a different way than ever before. Then you're not just purchasing once, they take it home and it's theirs. So, purchasing the so the entire business model has been put on that. Uh, along with that is the investment thesis, you know, the, the investment practices, which are focused purely on growth and not looking too much at churn, yep. especially early on, because it's just yep. about growth. It's about what, what uh, markets can you penetrate and all that yep. sort of thing. So all the incentive is just put on the beginning. It's That's not right. put on the end of the journey. That's and right. it's only more recently when we're seeing but the bubbles bursting, that they're like, oh shit, wait a minute. <laughs> and and and, and the, the final piece of the puzzle as well, I'll add is something you just pointed out there a little bit, which is the vast majority of personality types mm -hmm. that go into being founders generally either have a technical background or a sales heavy background, generally one of the two. You've, yeah. I, I, I don't think I've ever really met a founder that was like, oh, I was a CS agent for 20 years and I decided to start my business. Like, you know, you're one of the few. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's rare. So they don't have that unique that unique uh, viewpoint, vantage point going into a business. So that's my theory. It's kind of a, a mixture of these these things come together. But now it's becoming more of a of, of an area of focus. I'm totally with you. And I will say I hear a lot of organizations say they're so customer centric. And then I start speaking to their CS team and they're absolutely effing not like yeah. They're lying yeah. to themselves because it sounds good. I don't, or maybe they are so disconnected. They think they're customer centric, but then it's like, you haven't spoken to your client in six months time and you haven't asked them how they're, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe, like, and share your thoughts in the comments. It's just it's delusional. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it is delusional. And it's, yeah. it's, it's not to pass judgment because I've been in leadership. It is very difficult. You're always running in 1 million different directions. And I really empathize for that. But for me, the language you use is also conditioning your teams. And so if mm. you're saying you're a customer-centric organization and your customer success team gets no investment, no guidance, and they're just scrambling constantly to service the customers and they're falling back to being reactive instead of proactive, you're not customer-centric. Yeah, yeah. And no matter, and I know a lot of phenomenal CS leads that unfortunately just can't 
by themselves change the entire culture of an org. And that's really and also, yeah, no, I agree. And also, I think um, SaaS uh, business models, financial models are broken fundamentally because what they fail to recognize is that, you know, like so, you know, a lot a lot of um, uh, executives will t tend to look at the, the CS team as a cost that doesn't make sense because it's like, well, they're not, I, I want to get more salespeople. I don't want to be yeah. adding more CS agents. They're not bringing any more new business in. And of mm. course, that's a fundamental misunderstanding, right? They're, they're, they are bringing in business every month. They're bringing the same business every month, right? So they are reselling every month. Like we just talked about so the actual business the financial model itself is fundamentally flawed because that isn't baked into that as a fund as a as, a, as an understanding let alone uh, upsells and a really really important one which i believe will actually make salespeople pretty much redundant in the next 10 years is referrals that's a huge misunderstanding about right and and if you can incentivize your your cs team to do that and build a proper structure in place for it they can generate more business than your sales team so that goes back to when I was saying word of mouth and they bring yeah. in back customers. So at my my last W2 job, we had a goal in my final year and it was to get 40% of our business from referrals. And well, we didn't get to 40 because that would be outrageous, to be honest. Uh, we were, I think it was over a quarter and right. it was over a quarter of our customers were bringing in more customers, right? Easiest sale ever. You're welcome, sales team. And again, better expectations, easier to service mostly. It's it's the whole vibe. And so if we think about how do you build an effective organization and a brand that's built for the ages, mm. it's by being almost, I would say, maniacal and incredibly focused on what is value, how can we continue doing it, and then how can we ensure that those folks know how to speak to the value in a way that's going to sell to their peers, right? Yeah. yeah. That's like that's that's it. That's it. Simple. We just solve it. <laughs> like it's hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's true. And 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 I think for certain businesses, you could see like in the timeline of the business, go to market team grows, mm -hmm. yeah, brings it a whole lot of people, CS team grows, mm -hmm. go to market team shrinks. Mm -hmm. CS team continues to grow. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's really what you could see with certain businesses, because of actually, quite frankly, the, the go to market team that should just be focused on go to market. And then after that, you should just be able to continue to grow using the network effect, using virality um, and your existing customer base in order to do it. And and obviously that that massively shortens the pipeline as well. So do they really need to go to a to a, a BDM or an SD? No, they don't. They can just skip the front of the line and you know yeah. get them in and get them paying, you know? And also poor poor BDRs and BDMs these days, like they're really oh, that discipline's yeah. gotten real freaking hard. Thank God I didn't go into it. Um yeah, I, I feel for them. But to your point, it's also not as effective, even if you have the best BDRs, right? Like it's yeah. it's just tough, tough going right now. Yeah. So that's a better entry point, obviously. And, and what are most of them doing anyway? They're using uh, referrals most of the time. They're using testimonials most that's of the time. They're they're using uh, yeah, they're using whatever they can from existing customers most of the time because if that gets better results or content marketing, social selling techniques like that so they're not becoming that you know realist salesperson really these days is more of a, a creative agency closer to, to marketing than than actual sales and they have to focus on building a relationship that lasts over a period of years so they're somewhere between marketing and customer success not sales these days and obviously this is a blanket statement that is not true for every industry but but for a, the vast majority of the tech industry that's certainly the case you know and and what's funny there is when you're talking about these techniques that are effective for bdrs a lot of those are things that i try to bring in to 
customer success. So oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So some of it is I was speaking with a client last week and they're like, Hey, I just can't like persuade my client to get this best practice put in. And I was like, well, why should they care? Mm. Like, uh, what do you mean? I was like, well, what, like, what's the value to that? Not to you, to that. They're like, well, you know, I had another team on it and they got, it's a lead uh, acquisition company. They got like 30% more leads. I'm like, well, tell them the freaking story and like paint the picture of like, hey, someone who looks just like you, who was going after the same KPIs, right? They're measured on the same things. They were really struggling because the market shit and leads are hard and blah, blah, blah. And here's what we did to help them. Here was the output. And now here's how they're spending their time, right? Mm -hmm. Like just tell the story, do the yeah. social like the best way to sell in a best practice is by connecting that person's pain and need with someone who looks just like them. And it has to be true. I, mean, I would never say like lie and make this shit up, but yeah. often we have those stories. It's just about collecting them for the whole team to understand them and to know them and to call upon them in the right moment to be like, Oh yeah, I had a client do this, right? Yeah. That's the way to sell because you're not coming across as a salesperson, which we can talk about in a second. CS is, mm of what sales is but you're not coming across as a salesperson or self-interested you're just educating them on like yeah i see a lot of clients just like you that's why our business exists so do you mm. want to know what we're doing and what's been effective cool i'll take you through it that's it they're gonna they're gonna trust people who are like them not someone whose job it is to sell you on something right i mean yeah. i'm gonna sound like a broken record when i say this and listeners and watchers are probably gonna be sick and tired of hearing me say this every episode but narrative is so fucking important like just tell a story in everything we do the most compelling way to get anyone's attention to convey information whatever mm -hmm. it is to build a relationship you know to make friends in an empty room tell a story mm -hmm. you know you could literally stand up in the middle of the street and if you start telling a story people will stop and they'll listen if it's compelling and it's got character arcs and it's got you know moments of struggle and and and, and pain and, and hardship and then and then wins and you know if it's got some emotional traction to it it goes up and down in some way you know, even in that case of like, we had someone come to us, they had this issue, they were really struggling with it. But then mm. it's like, oh, oh no, it's, oh, <laughs> you, know, you know, you've just got to capture people, you know, with emotions. That's all it is. That's how we're wired as human beings. I know? love this. And, and one of my advisors, he actually does narrative design. And the way that actually translates is he works with companies, startups or corporations who either have are designing out their brand or have lost their way and just diluted their brand and they don't even know what they stand for. And he really gets down to value. He distills it. He uses the language. I mean, the guy speaks seven languages, so his brain is just structured oh, in wow. a to figure out like yeah, how do we yeah, yeah. in the best way possible. And the cool thing is that narrative design like marketing is not really, I don't think understood or respected in a way it should be. But at the end of the day, like I can design the best customer success program and process, but if we aren't speaking to value in the right way and we don't have the right narrative, it's not going to be effective. Just like sales won't be effective unless we're speaking to the story and the value in the right way. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so for, for me, the work that he does and when people get it, it's so foundational to every other output of the organization. Mm. But again, like marketing, most founders, when they have to make cuts, they cut the marketing team right away. Because yeah. people don't really understand what marketing should be or what mm. it is or what it does. Mm. And so that's just an, I agree with you completely. Stories are the most important thing to get funding, to get clients, to retain clients, to get best practices in, right? Because again, we're human. And, and beyond I, that, to just have friends, have meaningful <laughs> relationships, like be oh, yeah. liked, 
be liked at parties. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it goes beyond that. It's just being an interesting person. And like, to your point about the fact that your first client renewed with you because they liked you. Yeah. Like, there's, being likable is massively underrated. I agree. <laughs> every aspect of life and business like be likable first and the best way to be likable is to know how to tell a compelling story and mm -hmm. to actually give a shit about other people like have yeah. empathy like two things that's all you need and you'll be and successful in pretty much anything that you decide to do in life right and be authentic and i think yeah. i was not likable as a kid like i just didn't have a lot of friends so i think right. I was just this weird like observer of how do people interact with each other successfully right. like i was i was on the struggle bus over there and uh and for me it is i agree with you it's that authenticity it's it's genuine care and curiosity and the ability to tell stories right to build rapport or to to build excitement or interest um i totally there's, agree. and there's something to what you said there as well being being exploratory right wanting to find it just ask people about themselves and you know be 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 uh be a, be that detective that we talked about. I you know what? There's a really good example, and I could go on about this for ages. And, and apologies if this is a bit of a nerdy thing, but um, oh. I I'm, I'm a big movie fan, right? I love movies, and um, Hollywood is a great example right now of how not to run a business. Right? If you ever wanted a best example to any of your clients, point yeah. to Hollywood because <laughs> they for, they forgot that their number one purpose is to tell a story. They mm -hmm. forgot that. Instead, what they're doing is the equivalent of feature preaching. And now they've brought politics yeah. and, you know, telling people how to live their lives and what to think mm -hmm. into the forefront of what they do, as mm -hmm. opposed to being maybe taking a back seat. Like, you know, the moral of the story is upfront as opposed to uh, in, in sacrifice of just telling a compelling story with compelling characters mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So that's a good example. If you ever have any clients that are movie fans, just point them towards <laughs> towards Hollywood. <laughs> I love that. And it's funny because I uh, I have this weird thing where I struggle to watch movies. I right. still for that long, I start to get nervous. I don't know what's, I'm like so American that if I'm not productive in getting things off my list, I'm like uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I'll be honest. I don't think in the UK, we, we consider that to be a particularly American trait. Out of all of the things that we consider, we're like, yeah, I think being loud is like right at the top. Uh, <laughs> Guilty. Guilty. Yeah. Guilty. yeah, yeah. <laughs> being loud, eating a lot. That's another one. Hey now. Hey now. <laughs> hey now. I do love my food. Okay. Yeah, yeah. My Instagram is uh, is food because I sw I'm serious. I really do want to be on Great British Bake Off as the first American. I don't care if I have to do a fake accent the whole time. I'll do what I got to do. Can, anyway. you do uh, can you do a British accent? No, not while we're recording, but I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, I've been told it's a mixture of Australian and British, which is weird because when I try to do Australian, it's, it's not at all. It, it's garbage. Anyway, so I really want to be on Great British Bake Off. So I'm literally curating my Instagram, which is private, my Instagram reels and, and um, grid to all be baked goods. So when the producers are scouting and they're trying to figure out whether to take me, they're gonna be like, this girl has been baking for so many years, but it's to the point now where my aunt reaches out to me and she's like, I don't understand how you're fit. She's like, you, <laughs> <laughs> you eat too many cakes. <laughs> she's like, why did you make a creme brulee cupcake and like mac and cheese this week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm creme brulee is my all time favorite dessert. <sighs> okay, well, can I show you? Do you wanna see that? Show me, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're gonna cupcake. Yeah, I'm welcome to America, homie. Um, yeah, yeah, I forgot you guys just like fuse everything together, then. Yeah, it's the vibe, <laughs> and you can you can make fun. 
but this was my first attempt. And um, no, when you make creme brulee cupcakes, don't put the cupcake paper on until after because you will char it, or at least I did. But you know, we can. Oh up. wow, it looks lovely. Yeah, thank you so much. If you lied, I thank you for it. No, um, no, that does. So, so what? Have you just essentially made a cupcake, a, a, a creme brulee, but just in the shape of a cupcake? Is it exactly the no, same? No, no, I made a, I made a vanilla cupcake, and then I cored right. it, and then I made a pastry cream, put it on top, chilled it really well, put on sugar, brulee it, bing, bang, boom. So that's quite clever, that. It's really. Fun. There's um, what are those uh, Portuguese pastries called? The uh, like egg egg pastries. Yeah, 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 yeah. custard. Mm -hmm. It's like similar to that, but I suppose with a spongy kind of base, isn't it? Similar, yeah. similar vibe. That's right. And I yeah. will say the so for me the top was not all one crispy shell, but you did have most of the surface area with the crispy, so you did get the experience. The problem is when you're biting into a cupcake you need it to not be one consistent thing or else it's going to go all over the place, you know? You see, now, in general, I think cupcakes are overrated. I hate cupcakes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it is my least favorite dessert. I'm an ice cream girl. Right. Cupcakes are trash, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> I just love the fact we were talking about them for that long and then we're just like, both actually, they're shit. But, um... Actually, I really don't like them. They they are literally built to dry out. Like, what's the point? Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was challenged. So I have friends now that are like, oh, but you can't do this. I'm like, come at me, bro. So mm. I was, I, someone had a creme brulee cupcake and they were like, I bet you can't make one. I was like, oh, here it is. <laughs> here it is, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably on the table. <laughs> that, walk away. Yeah. I added, <laughs> I added it myself. So thank you for adding the end of, of what I <laughs> Hey, that, there's no need to censor yourself on this. Um, but uh, anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. Um, but uh, I'm glad we were able to talk about food for a second because that's uh, a good top topic. But um, yeah, look, I, I, I'm re I'm really glad the things are going well. Uh, what's um what's next on the agenda? I mean, are you just going to continue to grow the business? You were talking about that you're you're currently thinking about how to scale the business. So so yeah. what's that looking like? You know, yeah, what, what's so the plans there? I I would actually love to hear your opinion. So basically, you know, I started out, got my first contract in the first few weeks from the COO I worked with who now found his own uh, company. And I have been building, I don't even have a website by the way. Like I've just been focusing on revenue and servicing my clients and, and all this mm. stuff. So I know I did actually try and find it because usually when at the beginning intro, I, I show the someone's LinkedIn profile and then I show their website and I couldn't find one. I was like, oh, okay, fine. I'll just show the yeah. profile. <laughs> I, I, I'm a word of mouth business at this point because right. yeah. I'm practicing what we preached and it's like, if I do a good enough job, people will refer in new clients and that has- Right, exactly. I, I didn't have a website for years. Yeah, same yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. good. Okay, well, phew. I have a one-pager. Uh, that's all to say. Where I'm at right now, I have been working more slash the same as I did in my past W2 job, which is too much, hmm. 13 hours a day. And for a few weeks now. The good news is that obviously invoices are pretty healthy. The bad news is I'm tired. And uh, I'm a control freak and I'm very cognizant of the fact that this is my brand. This is me. I will always be the salesperson because the conversations I have are not sales conversations. I'm just asking people about their business and I'm telling them anecdotes of what I've seen before, what I've done before. And that naturally and organically closes the sale. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to have other people sell what I do because I'm selling me. The fear for lack of a better term of having someone take over any part of servicing the client has been debilitating for me up until now 
where I realize I either I'm going to have to start turning away clients or raising my rates. And I don't really want to raise my rates because I want to keep a commercial structure that people can access me when they're pre-series A. Like I have mm -hmm. a few stage companies. So that's all to say where I'm at right now. I have a woman I've worked with in the past. She's brilliant. She knows the way my brain works, most importantly. And I'm trying to figure out what I can delegate to her that she has enough context from my pre-work and my data gathering, but she can take some of the execution off. And then eventually, if that works well, I'm hoping she could create templates that basically take the structure I have in my head and translate it to something more replicable. Because at the end of the day, if you think about customer success, there are often a few key areas that shit goes wrong. You could do it by life cycle. So normally it's onboarding, right? Like I know people who have written books about just onboarding itself because yeah. it is that marriage, um, the beginning of the marriage, or it's value articulation slash like value adoption, right? Um, so you can go by life cycle. There's normally a few things that are typically wrong. Like I could do a top five for each and then how to fix them. It's all here though. Yeah. And so the struggle is I don't have time right now to take what's in here and be like, hmm, let me structure this out and do my top five and do here's how we figure it out. Mm -hmm. I need time for that. And so we're trying it out because I can't do 13 hour days. I'm not going to be as sharp. I'm going to be tired. I don't want to. I, I also, part of my value is I bring energy and frankly act as a therapist for a lot of my founders. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do that if I'm burning myself out. Yeah. And I also don't want to, um, I'm kind of sick of exemplifying that for people and them thinking that like, oh my God, the only way to be successful is to work that many hours. Like, no, it just means I'm not working as smart as I could be. Mm -hmm. And, and I do a lot of, this is like a very long tangent, but I do a lot of work on myself. I do lifting, I do therapy, I do all of these things so that I can show up and be present and be the best person that I can be working 13 hour days is not conducive in the long run to me being an effective leader, advisor, or person. And mm -hmm. I don't want people to think that that's what it takes because it shouldn't. Um, so that's all to say where I'm at right now is figuring out how can I scale this in a way that preserves the quality, the authenticity, and um, the impact that yeah. I've had so far. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe we should have a pro bono session aside from this uh, this podcast, but to talk about it in a bit more detail. But like, if it makes you feel any better, I, um, I I'm in a very similar position. Um, uh, I suppose the one key difference being, like, like, by the sounds of it, definitely don't have as much work as you have on, <laughs> and certainly not with as many Series A companies as I would like. I definitely would like to work with more. Mm. Um, uh, and, and my outlet is definitely doing this, right? And and so I don't, I, I you know, I, I say to myself, especially with, you know, newborn son and everything like that, like, uh, I'm not gonna work more than, you know, I'll finish at half five and I'm not gonna, you know, there's occasions in the evenings I'll jump on and I'll edit and I'll do some things for clients. But generally speaking, I'm, I'm pretty strict with it as well. So I haven't got to that point, but I, I can definitely sometimes with a lot of the stuff you said there, you know, not knowing which part of the process to let go or hand over to someone else, you know, it's all in your head. How can you give it to someone else in the first place? Um, and then also, you know that you need to get it out on something that people can interact with because that's the way that you can continue to scale the business. You need to you need to replicate you somewhere else. But there's a big problem with that, which is, you know, a big part of why your business is successful, same with me, is because it's you. And putting it out into a onto a platform or, or something like that, it removes that. So, you know, is it the same thing? I actually had an idea recently, 
one of many, <laughs> which I'm sure you can sympathize with, um, where I've been experimenting with, uh, and this, and if anyone else wants to do this, take it, including you, and play with it. But um, you know those old games where you could choose your own adventure? Of course. Right. There's a platform I found where you can build your choose your own adventure game. Uh, and you can embed different uh, media in it and things like that. And I've been thinking of basically turning my entire process into a build your own adventure type style thing. Because the biggest challenge I have with all of the things that you just mentioned is every person's situation is unique and different. And so just coming up with a list of like, you should do this and you, know, you should do this, it just doesn't work. And people lose that feeling of like, this doesn't feel bespoke. But if I could replicate at least part of the journey to begin with, in that format not only will it still be yeah. fun and engaging but then also and they'll feel like you know they're, they're, they're taking part in something exciting still maybe without having to speak with me at least yet yeah. but they're still they'll then get the bespoke you know tailored uh feedback yeah. back um but the biggest part of that is just sitting down and finding the fucking time to do it so, yeah. and, and also a lot of the stuff's instinctive right like you know unless you're asked or presented yeah. with a very specific situation you, you know, if someone was to sit down and say, right, reel off all the advice that you give to people. I'd be like, well, I need a scenario. Exactly. Exactly. And I need their personality and I need what they mm. think. You know what I mean? Because it's like the way I give the same advice could be 18 different formats and methods. Exactly. I'm a human being because I'm going to try to tailor it to what's going to be most effective for them to help them get to where they need to be in yeah. the easiest way possible. And I it think could even be different. Like, do they have one CS agent or two? It could be massively different just because of that, because it's like, okay, well, then you have a little bit more resources, which means we can try this, we can try that. It might even make the difference what age they are, what background they are. Like, do we know what competency level they have? Because I won't, I'm not going to suggest this thing if you don't have that competency there. We'll have to work a different way around to it. It's You're so right. Well, the final piece for me is that I has been really getting in my way is the way I start out every engagement now. This is not, it's not how I started, but what I found to be most effective. I ask to do data gathering and I basically do interviews. I look at their internal processes, internal documents. Mm. I listen to call recordings and that's my first thing. And I say, my yeah. deliverable is to tell you based on the metrics you need to drive and what you're trying to do with your business. Here are my top priorities as a customer success leader that I would do one, two, three, four, five, however many there are. And if you agree with them, cool. And if you don't, we don't have to work together. Like all good hasn't happened yet, but <laughs> But we do that. And the problem in terms of making this replicable is that when I'm interviewing people, I send a script ahead of time of like, here are the key questions, basic questions, but based on reading their body language, based on when I feel like they're holding back something, right? That's when I double down. And yeah. every single time that I do that, or I listen to something that could be a big deal and I ask a second question, that's when I unlock the opportunity. So it's like, mm -hmm. I can't F up those interviews. And this woman I'm working with has done interviews in the past. It's not like she doesn't have experience. It's just, she's not me. And she yeah. hasn't, didn't do this for 15 years and she hasn't led the teams that I've led. And so it's like, it's the trust thing. And it's that mm -hmm. I'm terrified. So that's another piece. I, I, at this point, I'm not willing to try to scale that part out because yeah. it's, so core to my understanding of the business and the strategy and all of that. There's a lot of freestyling that happens, right? Yeah. 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 So, but but, but then, like, so let me let me um, pose a question to you, which I guess is the whole point of this uh, and my job. But uh, <laughs> I said that like it was an unusual thing. I hope you don't mind me asking you a question. Um, but like, 
So if you were if you were consulting yourself, mm-hmm. how would you approach it? What advice would you give for this particular? I would definitely say you need to document success and you need to document the process to getting to success. And so it actually, I wouldn't say start with the interviews. I would say start with what is replicable. What are the things that, what are the deliverables and what are the consistencies between the deliverables you've done and mm-hmm. how can you really make a playbook around how to create that, right? Right, right. Where it's still yeah. a lot for the snowflakeish nature or the unique parts of every single person's business, person being my client, but it still has that same approach because I probably do have a, I know there are similarities in what I look at and what I look oh, for yeah. consult on, right? Yeah. But there is just new ones, but there is definitely a, a probably a, a framework in there. Well, there is a framework in there for sure, right? But, and it's always like language. How are we using language? What is value? Hmm. Where's the drop off? What's a more efficient way to get past this thing? What's something we could do earlier in the process to hmm. hold us back from hitting this obstacle or from keep us from hitting this obstacle? Those are all the things I do. There's just room for nuance. Yeah, it's funny because one of the um, pieces of advice I give to most founders I work with when, especially early stage is, or any stage really, is document everything you do. And what I, and that sounds like a bit of a daunting task um, at first. And I say, well, actually, there's a really simple way of doing this. Um, Just have a, you know, get an app on your phone or a Google Doc Mm -hmm. and just make, basically make it your diary, Mm -hmm. right? Anything that's happened either throughout the day, you know, when you're having a lunch break or whatever, just type in some, some short thoughts about that. The challenge that you overcome, how did you overcome it? Anything like that happens. And what you'll eventually find is over time, you can use, you know, word searches to pull out certain mm-hmm. things and, and start compiling it yeah. into the beginning of your sales playbook, your your commercial strategy, your marketing playbook. Like everything can be based off that mm-hmm. like early on when you don't have anything. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's the foundations of it. It could just be your general thoughts. It could be a lot of nonsense and it could just be therapeutic. But the point is actually, you'll probably have quite a lot of genius thoughts there, especially if you're, you know, you're like me, two in the morning, an idea stri- strikes you. You can just pull out your phone, add to that Google Doc. Like it's all there, it's all in one place. It's messy at first and later it gets sorted. And I think the problem is a lot of the time we expect it to be structured straight away. Mm. And just like starting a business, yeah. your ideas aren't always structured to begin with. So it needs to start somewhere. So if it is just a mess of a document, fine. Mm. You can always structure it later, get an intern to structure it. Like, fuck it, it doesn't matter. Like mm-hmm. there's a way of sorting it out later, but the first process is actually structure, uh, is putting it down, right? I like that, messy at first. I feel like that's gonna be my autobiography's title. <laughs> messy at first. <laughs> Mine will just be messy for life because I'm <laughs> far better at giving advice than actually doing any of it, right? It is because <laughs> like, I have advisors who are phenomenal at certain things and then for their own business, they struggle with it. Right. Like, yeah. it's just like you said, if you were consulting yourself, what would you do? It's like, what? that's such an interesting part of the human experience of mm. you can be really good at helping people or coaching people with time management. Like when you were saying mark it all down, I used to coach CSMs because prioritization is a classic issue with a lot of customer mm. service managers of there's never enough time. How do I know I'm prioritizing the right things? And so I would coach them on like, okay, put it in your calendar at the end of the day look at like what could you have done differently or what should you have done or what didn't you do or what you know mm. what shouldn't you have done that wasted a lot of your time um but doing it myself is, is tough yeah yeah that's why i mean that's why what we do i think is so valuable to people because quite often the, the vast majority of the feedback i get at the end of um the sessions i do especially the pro bono sessions is like so like that was so obvious 
Like it was right there in front of me. Like, thank you for just yeah. clarifying it. And now I can see because if yeah, you, you've got so many plates that you're spinning. Sometimes you just can't see the forest for the trees. You have to, and and you know, with large consulting firms, I've seen them waste a lot of money from some of my corporate clients back in the mm. day. But I do think that the value of a consultant is coming in from that higher level and not allowing ourselves to get dragged into the weeds. Yeah. You know, because like I have a CEO, he's new, he's mm, six ish months into the role and he's been dragged into the weeds. Yeah. And so when I was telling him like, Hey, here's the smoking gun in your business. And here are the basics. He's like, Ooh, that makes a lot of sense. He was like, why is it taking me so long to, to see this? I was like, cause you're in the weeds. That's like, that's why I'm here because I'm going to help pull you up and be like, Hey man, we gotta, we gotta look over there. Like this, this, this weeded area, this swamp isn't mm -hmm. the problem yeah, you're just waste it's wasting your time over here you're being distracted I, another at the risk of saying another thing that viewers are going to have heard me say it's countless times before i think another really important reason why uh we are valuable as advisors and consultants is because we have no incentive to say anything either way right we, we don't give a shit like for yeah. the most part right you know if i if i don't if you get rid of me because you disagree with something i say i don't give a shit i'm going to find someone else to work with Right. So my incentive is just to be honest and to, to, to call things how I see them, mm -hmm. because that's going to help me do my job. Um, yeah. Whereas, unfortunately, in a salaried role, so in the business that we're consulting, no one is incentivized to say what they actually think. Mm. No, one. And I'm sorry, I don't care who you are. You can think you've built the most transparent, best culture in the world. Sorry to inform you, no one is going to actually tell you the truth. No one. Because they, they will risk losing their job. And that's the way it is. So I mostly agree. Mm. I will say in my former job, I did have people who knew I actually needed that. And my right. biggest fear was not knowing, like I heard a woman speak who said she used to run enablement for restaurants at the beginning of her, her career. And after the enablement session, she'd go in the bathroom and she'd sit in the stall and she'd wait to hear people come in and talk shit about her. So she knew what could she do better next time? Cause she knew she wasn't going to get it directly. Mm -hmm. So my thing that I always think about since that is like, when people were talking shit, what were they saying? Yeah. Yeah. And could I guess what they were saying so that I could fix it? It's, it's hard though, as a leader, because mm. hopefully, hopefully you have a few people you can trust who will be like, yo, you really messed up or like, Hey, this doesn't make any sense. Right. Like that's, that's the gold standard for me. And I did have mm. that with a few relationships but if you don't, sometimes it's just hard to know where to go as a leader because you don't have any of that information. So I agree. I think as a consultant, the job is to bring some of those harsh truths to light. Sometimes, um, yeah. I will say. Or, or even something like, uh, you know, not just thinking about uh, individual criticisms necessarily, but like, no. you know, strategy criticism or just or, or not really believing in a project, like things like that. Because if, if, if you hand a project over to a team and they as they start working on it, they go, wait a minute, this, this project doesn't quite make any sense. We're going to we're going to fuck this up if we do this and this and this and this. But the whole reason why they all got a job and they're taking over salary is because of that project. Yeah. None of them are going to put their hands up and say this project is worthless. Right. So, and that's the problem with the working environment and being able to get truth. That's kind of my point is it's, it's, yeah. it's beyond just actually, you know, oh, I disagree with your position because there are plenty of jobs that have created, you know, that atmosphere where, where people are openly allowed to voice their opinions. But there is a layer beneath that, yeah. which is, 
I shouldn't be working on this. I shouldn't mm -hmm. even be here. My, my job is redundant. Like, mm -hmm. this is the wrong direction. No one's going to want to openly admit that. <laughs> like, you know. Unless they hate it. So my favorite was when I could see the switch of people who, and I normally knew ahead of time, but like, if they were thinking of leaving, right? Yeah. you don't give a shit anymore. And that's when you get the best feedback and direction. Because they're like, <laughs> yeah. I'm about to give notice. Like, I'll tell yeah. you exactly what I'm thinking. That is the most useful. And I think a lot of people dismiss it or discount it because they're like, they're not invested anymore. It's like, no, dude, their barriers are gone. Their filters are gone. Listen, yeah. Yeah. listen to what they have to say because I guarantee other people on the team are thinking the same things. That's why exit interviews are so fucking valuable. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I used to tell my team like, hey, let it, you know, let it out in yeah. that exit interview. Like that thing you complained to me about, say it. Yeah, yeah. As long as it's constructive, right? And it's not just like, no, no, no. Shit at each other, but but, no, no. but but even then sometimes that's a bit healthy to just get it get out any gripes <laughs> you know <laughs> i think uh yeah offices should do a arranged boxing matches just to get all the beef squashed you know you know what we actually did we did um this wasn't with someone i disliked sorry my chair keeps going down i'm not actually this short you're you're i, I, I actually did do you know what hot ones is on youtube yes i love hot ones we did hot ones it was awesome and another member of the executive team and it was so fun yeah really effective with our our team because a they got to submit the questions and i didn't know the questions ahead of time so they asked some really spicy ones mm -hmm. and uh and b it was just a humbling moment of like we are real people and i think yeah. as a leader when i was developing my leadership style i was always a I and I like hate this lingo. I was human first because at the end of the day, like none of my work, none of my companies have ever saved lives. Okay. Like yeah, yeah. I'm not taking myself that seriously. When I'm dying, I'm going to be thinking of the people who I gave a shit about. And I'm not going to be thinking about like my freaking renewal rates, even though they're shit hot. Okay. Like, so, <laughs> so people knew that like you could be real with me. I also headed the mental health and wellness employee resource group as the executive sponsor because that oh, wow. was me as well i'll tell you a story about that actually it's pretty cool um mm. so i was like always a human first because to me if you think strategically about being a leader and you need to keep people there if you understand them as a human and you know them well enough to know that when their shifts are happening there's probably something going on outside of work right mm. even if you're trying to mask it they're going to be loyal to you right yeah. and so the more you get that loyalty the more you get more knowledge preserved and the more output you get because they actually like you. So I was, I, I led in a style that was very different from any style that I had been led um, outside of my, my biggest mentor, who's someone I reported to for six years on my career. And she's just an incredible human. So mm. I, I learned some of it from her, but human first, it's overlooked. And it, is, it is, it yeah. is. And, I mean, I think it, and, and like to, to our point earlier about how to approach the, the you know the, the customer interaction like if that's just an approach you take in general you'll generally be okay like i'm going out to lunch tomorrow with um my old sales team that i used to lead um i i haven't worked with them for seven years ah, oh and we're God. going out for lunch tomorrow it's just the the four of us the, the original team the team since got bigger and i don't know any of them of course, so yeah. it's just it's, so it's just that like, i'm not don't invite those guys i don't know if i can know who they are like, it's the boys it's the original crew we're the ones going out like we're the ones that built that company so it's yeah. like you know the, the, the first four so it's like yeah we'll go out for lunch you know like oh, that's yeah. that i think it should be a sign of something 100 you know? 100 if people care enough to stay in touch which is hard but mm. 
for me, it's like, not to get existential or philosophical, but it's like, we have such little time on this planet. Mm. In my opinion, the human experience is all about learning from each other and like helping each other grow. And whether that's for one minute, right, that you're sharing an interaction or it's for years, like treasure it and support and amplify each other in any way you can. And like, it's just Mm -hmm. always, I've never felt anything other than happy when I got a reach out from someone I hadn't spoken to in years, you know, I'd be like, mm. God, that was so nice. Like I loved going on that sales meeting with that person, you know, there's yeah. like, it's just beautiful. So that's all to say, just be a good fucking human. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't cost much. I, it, it's, it reminds me of something I always tell my son, which is um, uh, again, to get a bit philosophical, but I, I always tell my son, you know, when he's unsure about things and stuff, I'm like, buddy, what is your job on this earth? What is it you're meant to be doing? And he knows the answer now, but I taught him it's to learn. Oh, I love that. Okay. What is my job on this earth? To learn. What is everyone's job on this earth? To learn. And how do we do that? By listening to what other people have to say. Right. So next time your teacher asks you to sit the fuck up, you sit the fuck up. (laughs) That's how every conversation usually goes. When she asks you to stop mucking around. Yeah, so, <laughs> or if he's getting frustrated with something or whatever you know it's just it's a good fallback it's like you know you want to know what the purpose is of things that's it learn and and actually i, I want to say on this because for me there are a lot of people who at one point just kind of tune out and stop learning yeah yeah oh yeah and definitely stop, i think they know everything you know and and so for me there's like the growth mindset or whatever but it's like if you're not learning or growing, you're dying, in my opinion. Yeah. So part of my work has been when I recognize that shift in people where it just you see it behind their eyes where they're just like not in it. Mm. I would try to figure out why and like, how can I make it interesting? And can I make it interesting? And can I help them? Or are they going through some shit and they just don't have the emotional bandwidth or energy to to learn or to apply themselves? Like, I wonder if you get this from your family, uh, you know, of teachers because of, you know, the best teachers are the best students, you know, in the same way that the best scientists are the best, um, the best uh, researchers, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you never, you, you never know everything like in mm-hmm. any particular subject or field. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, the only way to be uh, at the forefront of any particular field is to continue to learn about it. Yeah. The best doctors and surgeons in the world are constantly reading the newest research and the best teachers are constantly learning about the new, you know, discoveries in history or, mm-hmm. or, or learning about new languages or whatever it might be. Like that's the only way you can stay relevant and 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 feel relevant, which is really important too, because yeah. we need to feel like we've got continuous purpose. Totally. And so in order to feel that way, we need to stay relevant. And that's mm-hmm. that's not an easy thing to do unless you just listen, you know? Unless you listen and unless you, you really want to learn. I think, I don't know. I think it's partially that. I think it's also just the world's so big and I grew up in such a small place that I was acutely aware of how much was out there that I didn't know or I didn't experience. And I just wanted to experience more. And so right. I put my, pushed myself. I hate change and I'm constantly changing. I pushed myself to just continuously go into uncomfortable situations so I could learn and grow. What was and, the, what was the type of place you grew up in then? So in the States, if you're from Michigan, which is in the Midwest, it's like a flyover state. Yeah. I've, got a client, I've got a client in Michigan. Ah, bless them. So <laughs> bless, them. bless them. So I have to show you my hand because Michigan looks like a hand. If right. you're 
looking at the map. It does, I swear to you. Okay. I'm from this tiny little town. It's called Northville, Michigan. And Northville, Michigan is, it basically has one intersection in the downtown of like little stores and little shops. It's a small suburban town, very boring, no diversity. Um, when I was growing up, I mean, there's dirt roads like all over the place, but it is in the suburbs. So most people would, mm. most of the families would be engineers who go to like Detroit and Dearborn and stuff to work on cars. And then they, you know, they come back to their families in the suburbs. So just a very, very small place. There's like a Victorian clock, which is the gem of the downtown. It's like a big deal in Northville is the clock. So mm. that's where I'm from. Uh, very small. I'm place. kind of picturing it in my mind, and like like I said, I'm a movie fan, so I'm I'm picturing yeah. like the traditional uh like the sort of town that where where the the the, the monsters escape, and like you know what I mean, like that kind of like like Gremlins, you know, or something like that. That's that's what I'm what picturing in my head. It's like uh, it's kind of like on I think Gilmore Girls was you, you get that feel for like the small town little right, like, right. stuff or like Hallmark movies or. Um, not that, I mean, I, I don't know if you watch Hallmark movies when you say- I movie. don't, no, I watch real movies. Yeah, okay, sure. So, uh, <laughs> wait, well, you can say to Hallmark, dude. They were just, <laughs> they started up yeah. Hallmark. Actually, I'm not getting sponsored by them anytime if I can see them. <laughs> but Hallmark actually, literally, it was right, it was the office right next to mine in my Series A startup when we oh, opened really? in New York, and they decorated the entire office building for Christmas. A friendly reminder to share this episode with your network. Subscribe for more and join the conversation in the comments. It really helps us out. Thank you. Because Christmas is like their, you know, blockbuster time of year. So you would walk in and it was this Christmas spectacular in the lobby of the building. And then you would go up to our floor and it was just so beautiful. And it was because of Hallmark. Okay. So shout out to Hallmark. Anyway, right, fair enough. very small, very cute. Um, we have a Victorian village that we preserved because it was founded in the 1800s. And so it's all these little Victorian houses. And then when the kids are in the third grade, you get Victorian days where you dress up in a Victorian dress that your mom sews and you go to school in Victorian fashion. Like that is where I'm from. It's very small. It's very same, same vanilla. And uh, so I wanted to get the hell out of there. Mm, fair enough. And do, do you still go back there and visit? Oh yeah. So I did, a, I had a whole Wizard of Oz Dorothy moment where I, so I grew up in, in that North Hill I went to school in state because in obviously college is so expensive here. You know, I had to go in state because it's way cheaper and I got more scholarships and all of that stuff. Then I worked on, so I grew up here. I went to school here. I'm moving across the state. Then I went to work in Kellogg World Headquarters. Then I went to Chicago. Then I went to Tel Aviv. Then I went to New York and then COVID hit. And I basically ripped my life down to the studs and I went back to Michigan. Um, and I totally rebuilt my life and came back to myself and did a lot of reflection and investment and got physically healthy and did therapy and all of that stuff. So I went back and it's beautiful. It's stunningly beautiful. Mm -hmm. I have a dog, you know, it was just, it was easy. And uh, then when the world started opening up again, I remembered why I left. Mm -hmm. And the reason I left is despite having an amazing family who I'm obsessed with, I just, I need more. And the way I'm wired, I'm never, I don't see myself living in a neighborhood, you know, with like this, this quiet life. I just need more. I need access. I need to go out with folks who are really career driven and, you know, a psychopath like me in that respect yeah, yeah. and have different viewpoints and can voice different experiences. Right. Like I just, I just don't want to be one of the same in short. Mm. 
So I moved to Chicago once the world opened back up and I moved back here because it's the largest big city in the Midwest, um, close to Michigan. That's like worth going to, frankly. It is a really, it's actually kind of like London in terms of mixture of city and nature. It has mm. a better proportion than New York had of nature. So for example, I can see, I can see like Michigan from my house. Um, I can go to the lake. I take my dog to the beach. I am overlooking trees. I'm in a city. It's just balance. And so for me, when I was rebuilding my life, I needed more balance. And I also needed to go to a place that while there are more career minded people, it's not New York in that New York is the only, the only part of your identity people give a shit about is what you do and how much you make, to be honest, right, right, right. like how much you can drink. And I don't really drink much anymore. I am more than just what I do professionally as we're obviously covering, but Chicago was balance. And Chicago is just one of those places that feels like home. So I did a full mm -hmm. circle. I went back to Michigan and it really helped me kind of heal and rebuild and, and build a healthy lifestyle for myself. And then I just chose Chicago um, where I fit a little better. Mm. Did you know anyone in Chicago when you moved there or was it just like a completely blank slate? So when I was 22, I did not know anyone in Chicago. And I don't know why I do this to myself, but I did that. I knew one person when I moved to Tel Aviv. And I knew a few people when I moved to New York and they were my coworkers. So I have injected myself into situations. And, you know, uh, when I was 22, I was in a work training and I was sitting next to this guy. His name's Brett. He's still a great friend of mine. And in the work training, the this is not actually I'll probably get canceled if I share this story. Long story short, I started teasing Brett because the instructor said something inappropriate to him. And I thought it was really funny. And so I started uh, teasing him about it. And mm -hmm we became friends and then we wound up actually like being roommates and having this great companionship and stuff, awesome. you know, built a couple friends from there. And then in Tel Aviv, um, I moved for love. So my now ex, uh, had a network and I was introduced there and then I made friends at work. And then when we moved to New York together, I made friends through work and, and all of that. So mm. yeah, I've, I've been in quite a few situations that I very much understood how difficult it is to make friendships as an adult and mm. how important it is to build a network of at least a few people that you can rely on, depend on and speak to outside of work um, so that you can have a more balanced and healthy lifestyle. It's yeah. hard, and it's hard now. When I moved back here, I was going to New York once a month because I was still working for my W2 job and I didn't invest in my network. And I mm. have one friend I've known for 22 years at this point. So he's a bestie, obviously. But I didn't have that many friends, and uh, and I've really since January invested in building out my network professionally and personally, because at the end of the day, if you're a good human, you probably want to be around other good humans, right? Right, right. How so. do you do the the second one? I'm I'm good at building out my network professionally. Ooh, I suck I at building out my network personally. How how do you go about that? Because I need um, some advice. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> come on over. So, uh, what I would say is, a obviously work friendships when you know you have a good human that you interact with i will and maybe it sounds like i'm a i'm just comfortable sounding like a loser i will literally say like you know what i've gotten to a point in my life where like i don't have that many girlfriends in chicago i literally don't i just made one last night I swear mm -hmm. and so i'll tell people like hey i honestly i'm looking for friends and i'm having a really hard time because i work from home and you know my clients are all over do you know any good humans that like you think are friendly literally do totally. i 
who's a good human? No, I, this is what I ask. I oh, say, well, you, well, what do you ask? Oh, whomever, whomever's opinion I respect, I say, who's a good human that you know? Can you introduce mm. us? And then I literally, it's just like a professional networking thing. Hi, yeah. I'm Aaron. I'm looking to make a personal friend. I don't give a shit what you do for work. I care about you as a human. Are you open to having dinner? Mm. Are you open to going for coffee? Are you open to going for a walk? Right? Um, that's that's what I do. And then yeah. literally- you know, the, problem, the problem for me is all my clients are outside of where I live. Yeah. So I don't have any clients locally to me because I live in Eastbourne. I don't, I, I'm like two hours away from London. Most of my clients are in London or around the world. So I can't even ask my clients or people I work with. Well, so then know? I'll do based on a hobby and you have to put yourself mm. on. So yeah, yeah. like, for example, I, and now I'm making friends, which is great, but, or I go to the gym. How mm. do I, like, I work with trainers and I bring them baked goods. So now they like me. So it's like, do I want them? Can I learn things from them? Can they be some of my friends? Or um, my advisor has a wife and a kid. I'm having them over for Friday because I'm Jewish. So I'm making Rosh Hashanah dinner. I'm like, can, oh, shalom. Uh, <laughs> shalom. <laughs> um, I'm like, can I, you know, can I bring them over for dinner and can I cook for them? Like, or go to a cooking class. Obviously, maybe you shouldn't because you're probably pretty fucking intense when it comes to cooking. But <laughs> yeah, like Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> I love, I love G Dog. I call him G Dog. He's G Dog. He, oh, cool. oh, you're good friends. Are you, you yeah, best mates with him. Uh, but then for me, I also love board games because I'm a nerd. So it's like go to a board game place and throw down competitively. You're either mm. going to make or break any acquaintances there right yeah 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 i almost lost two of my best friends in a game of monopoly but you better fucking believe i want it like <laughs> not best. yeah if you're really good at something maybe probably not the best place to make new friends right you're just gonna piss or, a lot of people <laughs> or yeah you're gonna piss some people off but the ones who aren't are gonna be like oh i see you i like you yeah yeah you know what i mean yeah so i actually did try something recently because i have been living in eastbourne now for it's got to be 10 plus years wow. and uh i don't really have any. I've got ex colleagues. Like I said, I'm going to lunch with them tomorrow. But like, you know, I haven't spoken to them in months, and like, there's months and months we go. But it's not like we hang out or anything. And the one friend I did have in Eastbourne died, unfortunately, fairly oh recently, God, like so a year funny. or two ago. Just random heart attack at the age of like, uh, what was he? He was in his late twenties. Just died of a heart attack. Ooh, just like that. yeah, watching Iron Maiden at a festival. Died. Um, yeah, and so yeah, random. And then another friend of mine, unfortunately, a few years back from back home, who we did see fairly frequently, he committed suicide. So in general, pretty, uh, pretty, and he wouldn't mind me laughing about it because of uh, yeah, he's uh, yeah, he had a twisted sense of humor. So uh, yeah, shit out of luck in that front. But so so, and, and I did try something recently. I um, I, I'm Jewish too uh, by by birth, but I, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, but I'm not a practicing Jew. because I have a similar one. Yes, I do. Me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very nice. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm not a practicing Jew. And to be completely honest, I, I'm an atheist, right? I, I don't believe in God. Um, cool. But I, I, I value the 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 the, the, the her heritage greatly yeah. um, and have a huge amount of respect for it, just in the same way I do for anyone's uh, religious ancestry or, or beliefs. Um, and I thought, you know what, there's a there's a local gathering that happens uh, once every couple of months or once a month, um, which is like a, a liberal Jewish uh, mm -hmm you know, gathering essentially. Sure. And I, I messaged the guy who runs it. He's not a rabbi. He He's just a, you know, very, he's from New York, actually. He's a, 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 uh, originally um, a Jewish musician and uh, just has a lot of passion for, for his faith. And, you know, I messaged him. I was like, look, I'm not 
a God-fearing person. I don't believe in this, but I'm very interested. And I'm looking to put myself in situations to meet other people because I don't do that enough. Uh, you know, would you, I, I, I'm sorry if this offends you in any way that an atheist wants to essentially come, <laughs> but I, I do have Jewish heritage and I respect it fully. And like, would that be okay? And he was like, absolutely, come along. So I went along. Um, this was months ago now because it's very infrequent and he leads a, you know, service and all that. And then, you know, they sort of have drink of the wine and all this sort of stuff and, you know, read from the Torah and everything. Um, but it's like six people. Uh, it's not huge. And, you know, majority of them are quite old um, and lovely people. Don't get me wrong. But it's just like, do I see myself like in terms of the, and also it's like once sporadically it's like once a month once you know twice twice you know uh, in a quarter that kind of thing it's just it's not regular so i, I will be going again because they're lovely human beings but it's yeah. it wasn't quite the opportunity to make new friends as i perhaps first expected you know one, th one thing i wonder is like as a man is it harder because for me it's like i'm just vulnerable and i'm like yo i've moved a lot in my life i'm mm. a like person i am fun i swear to god and i do i have made friends in other places so i'm not like you know boring but yeah. I don't have friends and I'm lonely and <laughs> I need a girlfriend or I need this type of friend. Is it harder as a man to like admit that? So, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for all men and say sure. like, yes, it's harder for men, but like, yes, it's harder for men. Yeah, <laughs> because, that. because I think, you know, it's, it's very difficult for a man, men, men judge of a man um, quite harshly in, in terms of vulnerability. Like if you, yeah. you know, and, and um and, and in fact more yeah, or they can do but but not always but i think more than that like society judges men quite harshly based on on any vulnerability which is why we have such huge problems with suicide rates and so on as my friend is a good example of um but more than that it's kind of like there's a certain amount of respect that men need to have for one another about certain things and i and i feel like you you can lose that if you're too vulnerable you know wow. Uh, yeah, and, and and so you have to be careful. It's about finding a balance. I mean, it, it's the same with women and men. I, yeah. I don't care. I don't care what women say, but like you know, and, and this might be con controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. Is no woman really wants to see their man cry, mm. right? Like they, they say they want to see weakness, but actually, there's a, there's some there's a, something that can change in the way that you perceive a man if you see him being too vulnerable. Because his, you know, quite often we, at least in in some most relationships, not all you know the, the position of a man is to be a source of strength this stability and consistency and sometimes if you go over that boundary too much and show too much sensitivity too much vulnerability then you can change as you know in that person's eyes yeah. as be as as moving away from that and and the man doesn't want that because we as right. men like that and so that's why we we tend not to want to be too vulnerable because we I want to be seen I, I totally get that. And and I that's something I gathered. And listen, I lived in the Middle East. Like, you want to tell me about men presenting themselves as just like tough. Right. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. um, my ex-husband was Middle Eastern, and I did see him cry mm. a couple of times. And for me, I never felt closer to him than oh, in interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but feeling closer and, and and the opinion you have of him, like I mean, and, and I'm not saying this was the case, and and you yeah, know, yeah. Th this doesn't happen all the time, but like I feel like while you may feel closer, that the concern yeah. is, yeah, we can definitely get closer as a couple if I open up, right. but then will I be viewed in the same way as being as strong as I was mm -hmm. perceived before? You know, has yeah. has the perception changed of me? And I think that's a concern, whether it's true or not. We have yeah. that concern because out in 
out in the world, that certainly is the case. Yeah, out in the you wild, know? right? You would have been right. killed if you showed that weakness or you showed, right? Like, I, I think there's something... Um... Even like professionally, for example, like this oh. happens all the time. Let's say, you know, um, some uh, two people get called in to be told off at work. Yeah. You know, if a woman was to break down and cry over it and talk about how, you know, she's having troubles at home and she's finding things difficult, she'd probably get a lot of support mm -hmm. and not be judged too harshly based on that. Mm -hmm. and, and I know this for a fact, I know I've seen it happen. Mm -hmm. If a man then goes through the same process and if he was to burst out in tears, and I've been in this situation as well, burst yeah. out in tears because they're going through a difficult time, then you're no longer reliable. There's wow. something wrong. That's yes. wild. You yeah. know, you're, you're unstable. There's something not right here. And this because is, it's not acceptable. It's not professional. And that's interesting because I would always go to the bathroom and cry. Right. I let people see me cry. Even before I was a leader, I was like, I'll be damned if they know that they got me. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah, I cried. Yeah. Like, my first job was horrible. It mm. was rough. People were so mean. And I don't know who raised them. And I would, I would cry in the bathroom stall. Like, it got to a point where it was almost every day. Well, wow, that's awful. Well, you know, shit happens, and you get through it. But mm. um, and that, that, that's that's a very man man response to that. It's just oh well, you know, shit happens. I mean, that's what your friends will tell you if you're down the pub. You know, shit happens. Just carry on, crack on, you'll be fine. Yeah, you know? I mean, I, it's just I I let it out. I let myself feel those feelings, but like yeah, you know, and then I changed my surroundings because I think that was a big piece of it. That's all to say, I it's interesting. I'm thinking about the person I'm seeing now, and mm. he's very strong. And I genuinely, this is me, sample size of one. If I saw him cry, I would be like, oh my God, finally, he's like comfortable enough around me to do that. Mm. I might be, I'm, I'm sure I'm different. I'm a different kind of bird. I always have been. Maybe. Like, I mean, like, I think maybe a lot of women would, would agree with you on that, like to a degree, but I think there's, it's just a risk for us, we feel like, because look, all men have, and women, have, we've all been in shitty, toxic relationships before, and if you haven't, then you probably, you know, you're getting there, or you don't realise you're in one yet, right? Um, and, and so far, yeah, yeah, like, and, and, you know, in those relationships, you can be made to feel like absolute shit just for having an opinion or a, or a feeling. And, um, you know, time and time again, as men, we sit around and talk about our relationships, despite what people think, we, we do discuss these things. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're repeatedly chastised for talking about our feelings, despite the fact that we've also repeatedly chastised for not talking about our feelings. And so it's just, it's like, well, what the fuck are we meant to do? So the best thing to do is just go, I don't have any feelings. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah know, it, it is know? interesting and it, this is the the final piece i love this for this is very personal but my marriage ended because um my ex stopped feeling like a man and i was like what does that even mean and he was right. like okay, because uh my career accelerated faster than his and so oh, interesting we felt threatened by them he felt her, and I was like, I don't give a shit. Like, you know, who cares? I love you as a person, and that's why I'm with you. Like, I didn't marry you because you were X role at X position at X company. Um, mm. But he stopped feeling like the man. And so it was a lot of like, what does that even mean to you? And where did that come from? And how do you believe that? And how can we fix that? And all that stuff. Mm. And, you know, it was um, very sad <laughs> to see yeah. him feel that way. You know, when I was like, no, we're part of a team. It doesn't matter what we accomplished because we're like a unit we do it together so it was tough yeah was no i can imagine i'm sorry to hear that That's he's in a good place now though so we're happy okay. you know we're, we're okay. both happy and amicable and respectful and all yeah. is like that i can't because there is so much pressure 
again, like, you know, in this culture, who knows how people mm. would feel about this, but there is a lot of pressure that men face. And obviously there's a shitload of pressure that women face and like mm. our experiences are totally fucking different, especially in tech, which is something we all talk to each other about too. But mm. I can't imagine not sharing the feelings. That's pretty fucking awful. Yeah, it is. But it's it's just something that you learn to accept at quite a young age as a man, to be honest. Like, I, I saw a really interesting thing that's been doing the rounds on TikTok recently about um, from a, a couple of things, actually. There was a, a woman who transitioned to a man uh, that was talking about, like, basically she wrote a book. I can't remember. I did write it down somewhere, but she wrote a book about it, um, about her experience as a, as a man. Um, and she, 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 I think she actually ended up committing suicide. Um, and she she found it to be the most horrendous, traumatizing experience that she's ever had in her life. And I think she was a journalist and she was doing it. Uh, I, I think I might be conflating two stories. I think I recently saw one was about a woman who, who actually transitioned to be a man because that's what she, you know, because of her gender identity. And then she she was pouring out about how difficult it was. And I think there was another person who was a journalist who exper as an experiment um, sort of presented as a man for a period of time um, mm. in order to see how it worked. And I think that was the person that wrote the book. I think I'm confusing two stories. Um, and she and she is the one I think that I believe committed suicide, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm terrible at remembering things like this. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I've heard apparently the book is is infinitely fascinating because of the it's the the insight from, from a woman's perspective with the assumptions. I think she was actually a feminist originally, a very, very you know, extreme feminists originally when she wanted to kind of prove that her theory was right, that men have it easier. And she found out we were so fucking wrong. Men have it oh, so much harder than we realize. Sorry? That's fascinating. That's yeah. And it's, and it's because obviously my experience as a woman in tech, like I've been in, I've been around men. Literally, I had to make girlfriends in Chicago because I work with men. I am around right. men. My clients are men. Like, I am so, and it's cool. I'm a homie. Like I love hanging out with whomever. It doesn't really matter. Mm. But I was like, gosh, I need a girlfriend. Cause like, I want to talk about stuff and I want to yeah. talk about feelings. And I, and you know, this person works in the finance world. So she also works predominantly around men. And it's just nice to have that place of vulnerability. What's interesting is from my perspective, it's like the men stick together mm. and, the, and the men like just like there were so many countless times when I was in a room and I would say something and then a dude would say literally the same thing I did and all the men would react to him saying right. it. And I'd be yeah. like, the fuck, bro? I just said that. So it's it's mm. the human experience, man. It's nuanced, huh? I think the biggest problem is just we always think the grass is greener. Yeah. Whether you're black, you think white people have it easier. Whether you're a woman, you think men have it easier. Whether you're, you know, it doesn't matter. I think people always think people have it easier on the other side. And the truth is being a human is just fucking hard. It doesn't matter what skin color you are. It doesn't matter what gen genitals you have. It really doesn't fucking matter. The, 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 the fact is we've all been thrown into a different situation. Some people grow up in much harder situations than we do. And it seems like that in the Western world, especially, we're so free of a lot of the worries that the vast majority of the human population have by the way which we yeah. tend to fucking forget about that yeah. we, we we completely decide to make up our own drama and we have to do that based on something and it has to be about gender identity or or or, or, or race and or religion and we just make up this drama i'm not a fan of any kind of identity politics whether it's male female black white whatever you know gay straight it's just like dude just just connect to that person for who they are and don't assume that they've got it better or worse off than you because that's not going to help you you're just putting yourself as a victim there and and that doesn't that doesn't drive anything just focus on what you can do because actually you can do a lot more than you realize and if you're going into that situation expecting to fail because you are whatever you mm -hmm. probably will
because that's that's the, the nature that's you know you're man manifesting the things around you right so just you know I think one thing you mentioned I observed in high school and so North right. Valley town uh, most of the kids were pretty wealthy because their parents worked for these auto companies and and were executives and all this shit okay I was not I drove a purple station wagon that was 11 years old it was called the Barney Mobile it had rust on it I parked it between a Hummer and a BMW that these 16 right. had I worked two part-time jobs and I made $5 and 15 cents an hour because it was minimum wage. Like I was not living the experience that most of these kids in high school did. And I watched these kids who were given the world on, again, in my perspective, a silver platter, literally create problems for themselves. Mm. And like one girl just started doing drugs. Cause I, you know, and I don't know what her home life was. I assume it wasn't the most happy, but I just watched these people like throw shit away or create drama because they were so bored. Mm. And I was like scrapping for stuff. You know what I mean? Like I was saving up for a Hollister t-shirt at the time. Okay. Like this is, yeah, you know, yeah. and it was just, I did see people when they reach a level of boredom, create problems for themselves. And I think mm. that was something that stuck with me. And also frankly, made me terrified to ever have kids, but <laughs> we, that's it. We don't have time for that, but I, <laughs> I do it. I, I have a dog. I'm good. That's enough. I've got a dog and kids. I can yeah. I can safely say dogs far more fucking rewarding. I'm joking. Yeah. I'm joking. <laughs> I, I love kids, but I'm like, um, yeah, I just I watch people create problems for themselves. So that's all to say, like I don't get I'm not a political person because I don't have the energy. Yeah. yeah. Like I hate to say it. I just don't, man. I'm just trying to like do good, treat people well, be a good example of for myself of what I represent to other people, be cognizant of that and like keep myself healthy. That's yeah. all I'm trying to do. You know, and when people are like, what are your aspirations for your business? Do you want to make it a trillion dollars? No, I want to do good work with good humans. I know I can trust inside and outside of work. It doesn't matter. And I want to help people fix their businesses and like bypass the scar tissue I got. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. simple. I just, and like, I have a beautiful home and all this stuff. Great. But like simple, I want it yeah. to be simple. And, and that's the problem with politics. It's a business in of itself. So people have their own interests in why they want to do these things because they, they, you know, they, they, they have a business built around it or, you know, it serves their own self-interest. But I think the biggest issue there with like those kids that you were talking about is lack of perspective. Yeah. Right. And yeah. this is a problem we all have because we all lack a lot of perspectives. You know, that's why, like I always say, be a student. Your, your job is to learn because actually, you know, if you go to the majority of the countries outside of uh, of the UK, you know, Europe, America, uh, which is the majority of the world, by the way, yeah. <laughs> the problems that we talk about are not the problems that they talk about. Really? It's like fucking perspective, man. Like, you know, it's easy to look at someone doing better than you and make a false equivalency to the reason why they're doing better than you is because of the differences between you. That's a false equivalency. That you, should, that, you know, the, the, the most obvious, and we work through the most obvious differences first, right? So we look at them and we make an assessment and it's like, okay, do they look like me? No. Why do they not look like me? Because of this, this, and this. And that's the conclusion we make. And it's like, well, wait a minute. That has completely ignored the 25, 30, 40, whatever years of their life that has led them to this thing. There's a lot of shit happens in a life that can lead them to the position that they're in. Like, that is what you should be actually comparing with. What was their education? What was their experience? What were the people that they, you know, you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot more to it than that. I think I, I mostly agree. What I will say, though, is access. So, like, I read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And mm. have you read it? 
I have not. No. Oh my god, this is like these are the two books I've read. Just to, like I am not this booky girl. Like, I read yeah, fiction. Yeah. But, like, I, I can recommend books all the time. I, I'm just I, yeah. I I, I, I need to read more. I, I actually yeah. liked Outliers because Malcolm broke down. He was like, okay, you see these American stories of these people who like you know were just prodigies and like Bill Gates, right? Like Bill, mm -hmm. Gates, Bill Gates, and he's great and he's awesome and he's done all this stuff. But it all comes down to access. Bill Gates was part of a suburb in Seattle that had one of the first access to computing systems. So he got reps in, he got time in because he had access to these very expensive computing systems that other people didn't. And so the fact that he was, it takes like 10,000 hours to become a master at something. The fact that he was able to get in those 10,000 hours before anyone else all comes down to access. And obviously it's also discipline, it's drive, it's interest. There, of course, there's more to the story. That's mm. one thing that I am cognizant of, though, is like, as I talk about my own career, and God knows I'm not Bill Gates, I've had access. Right. I accessed corporate America easier. I accessed mm. C-suites. And frankly, I code switched, right? Like, I hid my body. So it wasn't, obviously, people can tell I'm a girl. But like, you know, I didn't want that to be the focus. I aged myself. I would literally put on makeup because I was in my early 20s talking to C-suite, and I knew they weren't going to trust me. So I put on powder. And there's a specific technique called baking you can do. And it showed more of the lines around my eyes. So I looked a little more aged. Really? Wow. Yeah. Like, because the first time I did, they looked at me like I was a kid. And mm. guess what? I was a kid who actually knew my shit, but they just saw me as a kid. So mm. I could. So anyway, access is one thing that I will say, and I will agree to perspective. I'm going to tell you a story. So I was driving a coworker home of mine when I was in Tel Aviv. And she was really just... I, we were just talking about her background and like, you know, when did your family come to Israel? Cause that's like a classic question. You know, at what point in history did, did your family flee? And mm -hmm. she said, well, you know, my grandma came here um, during world war two and she started working and she had a few siblings and she could only afford to save one. And I'm just quiet. Like, did she really? And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, my grandma worked really hard and she only had enough money to save one of her siblings. And I just go, holy shit, like yeah. how that decision and who'd she pick and, you know, all this stuff. And it's like the gravity of that moment mm. will always stay with me yeah. Like, yeah. perspective, man. Like, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I work so I can get my dog like freeze dried food and someone else was working so she could save one of her fucking sip. Excuse my friend, but like. Yeah, no, never. No, yeah, exactly, and and that's the point. It's like this. There's it's so many of the the, the things that we concern ourselves with are, are entirely insignificant. I mean, if you really wanted to take it to the extreme, everything is, and you know, you know, yeah. that's where the nihilism comes in, and so on. But I, and I'm, I don't prescribe that as a perspective. I actually think it should be the other way around because if the things are so astronomical, the odds of being alive are just astronomical and all that. So it should be it's held as something extraordinarily valuable. But that's a whole other discussion and very philosophical and whatever. But like, yeah, absolutely, and and and. You know the, the the other thing as well is like just to your point about um uh like uh, uh opportunity right that you yeah. mentioned there uh, yes that is the case and i think it's very easy to be jealous of people's opportunity um but that's focusing on the wrong thing in in the same way that you said like i've had opportunity we all have opportunity but it, it varies to degrees but it's not about it's about whether or not you have opportunities about what you do with it and it's also, you know, everyone has the power to create opportunity, which I think people forget about. So, like, oh, well, that person was born into a rich family. And so they they had the seed money to start whatever business they want. Their dad just bought them any business. OK, fine. That was their journey. What the fuck are you going to do about it? That not that more important? 
like than 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 just sitting on the sidelines feeling shit about the fact that this person has an advantage for whatever reason because of money or their gender or whatever. It's like and look, I get there's a that everyone has a plight and 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 certain people are 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 um are you know prejudiced against because of of course absolutely and that's part of the human condition and it's shitty. But what are you going to do about it? Like that's what it ultimately comes down to to, to me. You know. Have you have you heard Alex Hermozzi's, uh Do you listen to other podcasts? Should I ask this as you're shooting a podcast? Uh, I I don't know. Okay. <laughs> All right, I love this. I, I not anymore, but I used to a lot. But I don't have the time because I make my own. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spend my time either recording them or editing them or where yeah. you know what I mean. So it's like I don't have the time anymore. I respect yeah. it. So Alex Ramonti has a podcast called The Game. Alex Ramonti. Uh, was a consultant. He bought a gym, he grew it, and then he wound up making a business of helping people turn around their gyms. And now he actually owns acquisition.com, which is a multi-million dollar portfolio of companies where he helps them go from like 10 million to whatever. Cool. Mm -hmm. One of his things that he says is you can only control your actions. So he's like, so if your business is failing or your business isn't working, what are you doing about it? Are you going to sit there? Or are you going to double down on getting more leads in your pipeline? Because like sales right. is a math problem often, yeah. right? Like figure out all the different ways to make leads. He just released a book about all the different ways to make leads. It's called $100 million leads, whatever. Anyway, it I like what he says because it's like in moments where I'm scaling my business, which is a great problem to have and I'm so blessed to have it, right? Mm. And I work to have it, but like, cool. I can either just be overwhelmed or I can be like, okay, I'm going to do more. And I'm going to figure out how to hire a subcontractor and here are the things that I can do. And yes, I need my advisors to sometimes tell me and take me out of the weeds and be like, girl, you got to think about this. Right. Mm -hmm. um, owning it and controlling it. Right. And basically what he says is if you are doing so many actions that it is statistically improbable that you will fail, right? Like if you were continuously working on leads and doing more lead sourcing and all of that, like if you make it statistically improbable that you will fail, and it is less likely that you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. So that is that's what I was hearing in in yours is like, what are you doing with it? How are you controlling yeah. it? How are you getting yourself up, right, mm -hmm. to get to the point where you can focus on leads or yeah. just because, because it, yeah, exactly. Because the reality is, there's a lot of things that occur over a lifespan that can knock you down and, ah. and, and push you down. And if every time that that's the case, you you know, you're just accepting the foot on your neck. Yeah. as opposed to using that as leverage to pick yourself back up again then yep. you know and it's very easy to turn things to, to turn the energy the negative energy you get thrown at you or your perception a lot of the time of what you believe to be negative energy thrown your way um to turn it around as a motivational force yeah, that's what but, I do. but you don't do that if you if you if you see yourself as a victim mm -hmm. because victims don't behave that way you know that 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 it is the other way around. You, you you need to be pushed down on the neck in order to justify your existence as a victim. So it doesn't help anyone. You've just got to push forward. I don't know. I've got a you know. I'm quite opinionated on this, as you can tell. But like, <laughs> and I know it's not always that simple for everyone. There are a lot of people who are very very oppressed, and they and they yeah. That's the, that was that. the piece that's for me. Very like, different. You know, yeah. it's a, it's a very different scenario. I'm talking about. You know, yeah. the Western world, the majority of us, we've got pretty good fucking lives. Yeah. So let's stop moaning and just get on with it. Yeah. And more importantly, get on with each other. You know? Yeah, I like that. I like yeah, that. I don't know. But I just realized the time, um, which is nuts. I, I don't know where that two hours has gone, as always. Look, listen, I usually like to end with something um, 
which is to ask my guests to kind of reel off maybe some tips to the founders and entrepreneurs listening, which is the majority of the people who are listening to this, um, on sort of how to, you know, what have you learned by starting your own business and so on. I would like to do it a little bit different, actually, because we've kind of talked on that already a little bit. Um, and if you wouldn't mind uh, indulging me for a couple more minutes, um, what advice would you give to businesses looking to improve their customer success functions in their business specifically? Because I think that is maybe more appropriate. And, and, you know, if you do have any other business, actual tips on running your own business too, by all means, throw them in if you feel, feel up to it. I mean, honestly, run a business by being a good human and being honest. That's like mm. one. Um, if you want to fix your customer success program, ask the people on the ground, A, right. help them understand what success looks like. So ask the right question, meaning, hey, if I wanted to keep 50% of your customers for three years, what do you think we should do? Um, and then take a look at the life cycle and make sure that the language and the value you're using is consistent. So one of the first things I do when I'm consulting someone is I listen to their sales calls and then I listen to their kickoff. Do they use the same value points? Do they reiterate what they heard? Do they show that they give a shit about the human and they put in some prep time to at least say, hey, I saw that you went here or I see that you've been at the company this long. How has it changed? Like mm -hmm. ask some basic questions to show curiosity and to show that you gave a shit. Um, and then take a look at the program. And really the ultimate question is, do you provide value to your customer every single time you reach out to them? Because if you're not giving them and value can be different, it can be an insight, it can be guidance, it can be a heads up, it can be mm. performance. But if you're not providing value, at some point, you're conditioning the person to ignore you. So yeah. if you're a business, if you have cold customers, if you can't get a decision maker on the line, look backwards and see when's the last time you spoke to them and what did you talk about? Because you probably wasted their time. Mm. And yeah. then else, call me because I will Nancy drew the shit out of your customer success program. <laughs> that's, yeah, I like that. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's a little taster, but everything else, give you a call. You can yeah. sort it out. Yeah, I mean, there you go. And then we've just now on record put the the beginnings of your framework out there into the ether. Um, so there you go. It made it made a start on that. <laughs> But what's that mean? All and I want to I want to help you make friends. So uh, okay, yeah, cool. and uh, and and I can give you some tips on the scaling side of things. That's what I do. <laughs> all right, I appreciate. No, listen, your thanks. Yeah, no, likewise. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a really wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, I appreciate. It. I love doing this for, for for these yeah these reasons, like just hearing people's stories and and going off on tangents about stuff, which you seem to enjoy too. So that's perfect. Tangents <laughs> are where it's at for me. Damn straight. That's where it is. Yeah. I hope you have a great day. Thank you so much for your time. Likewise. Take care. We'll speak soon. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching and or listening. Please like, subscribe and join the conversation in the comments below.